Hello, well, I'm Eagle, Eagle Gardens, Eagle Gardens 1 on Instagram, and this is Fucking Talking Shit with Eagle, episode 509. Hopefully you guys have had a great day. I got a great guest for you tonight, Nick at the Rooted Leaf. How you doing? You want to tell us how you're doing, and of course, where we can find you. Absolutely. I'm doing well. Thanks again for having me on the show here. Uh, people can check us out at, online at www.rootedleaf.com and definitely give us a follow on Instagram the rooted leaf well nice to thanks again for taking for you to take the time to come hang out with us you want to tell us a little bit about uh what you do over there at the rooted leaf yeah so we're manufacturing carbon-based fertilizers which is a little bit different than salt-based fertilizers or even organic-based fertilizers it's kind of a different concept altogether so um, I initially got into the cannabis industry around 2008, 2009. I had a high level of interest in figuring out uh, what are the best ways to cultivate this plant and, you know, what are some of the sort of macronutrient and micronutrient ratios that uh, this plant would be very responsive to. So I started to dabble around a little bit, um, you know, for a couple of years and then 2014, 2015 kind of rolled around. And here in Washington State, where we're based, um, our manufacturing plant is in Arlington, Washington. Um, and, you know, around 2014, 2015, the state uh, set up a recreational or legal uh, cannabis market, an entire system for that. So um, at the time, you know, I had some experience with um, more industrial chemistry, surfactant chemistry, things like that. And I just decided that uh, my personal uh, interest and passion for cannabis uh, could coincide very well with this new lucrative market that was just about to open up. So I started to look pretty seriously at how to manufacture fertilizers and really what is the best uh, fertilizer for cannabis plants. So along the way, I kind of picked up a whole bunch of uh, nuanced tidbits of information that have, you know, helped me shape my understanding of what this plant really is, how it grows and what are some of the more sort of vital constituents of its growth. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, you know, we do, we are a manufacturing company, um, again, with the carbon-based fertilizer, it's a little bit unique of an approach. So what that uh, translates to basically is we've got a full product line that's designed specifically for cannabis plants. It does follow cannabis plants across the full lifespan of uh, their, you know, life from veg to flowering. We've got the lifespan products like our base nutrients and a CalMag that's nitrate-free, and then also a pretty good silica product overall that behaves like an orthosilicic acid. And then we've got a really, really cool nitrogen supplement and also a sea plant and humic combo. Those products obviously work very well in the vegetative stage. And then some growers like to use them for the first little bit of flowering. And then in the flowering side of things, obviously, you know, we've got a, um, a product called Peak Bloom, which is, uh, you know, sort of a PK booster, if you will, a bulky, bulker type of product. And then we've got Resin Bloom, which is our finisher and kind of our terpene and quality enhancer. So, you know, for most people that are familiar with most of the product lines that are out there, especially the really big and popular ones, this type of system fits very well with what their current understandings are of how products work and, you know, how they're supposed to be used. There's a couple of things once you start to look under the hood a little bit uh, about our products that are different. So I'm certainly excited to kind of get into it a little bit this evening and describe some of, you know, what's under the hood and how people can, um, Sort of look at our fertilizers in a different way. So I can't help but ask, are are you guys growers yourselves? 
Um, technically, no. You know, we. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I have experience. I don't have a garden that's up and running right now. Um, we don't have a production license here in Washington, although we are looking at acquiring one. Um, this business of ours, Rooted Leaf, um, started in its current form approximately April of 2019. So we're still kind of new on the block. You know, a lot of people um, have yet to hear about us, but I think the technology that we're bringing to the table is is uh, very potent, very powerful. So we're certainly looking at uh, getting into the cultivation side for sure. Yeah, that's going to be fun. So tell us what is the difference between a carbon base and a salt based nutrient? Yeah, and I guess in order to um, understand some of the differences there, you'd really have to just look at what plants are doing, like what defines plant activity and what are plants really doing at the end of the day. So, you know, you I say those plants you have behind you right there and those lights that are turned on right now, those are emitting, emitting electrical energy and the plants, the purpose of the leaves, they're like these giant solar panels. They're designed and engineered to capture the light energy uh, that's given off by the sun or a light. And you know, the trick for plants is to convert that light energy into chemical energy. There's this process, this photosynthesis process. So the light energy is used to split a molecule of water. You know, the electrons from the light go towards splitting the water that plants take up in the roots. Um, this is a very important process because as that water is split, they release the oxygen. Everyone knows from kindergarten class that plants breathe out oxygen and they breathe in carbon dioxide. This is sort of the tail end of that, the more advanced version, which is to say that um, when plants split water, they keep the hydrogen that generates a proton pump for them. This is the electrochemical gradient. And this is sort of where all of the possibilities for plant activity can kind of open up because it, it takes energy to do certain things. Like if we're talking about converting CO2 in the air into monoterpenes within a trichome, that takes energy. So how is a plant going to do that? And so that's the process. They split a molecule of water, they get that hydrogen, they develop a, they generate a proton pump, and then from there they can undergo some what are known reduc as reduction reactions. They can start to reduce things. And so if you look up uh, monoterpene on Wikipedia real quick, you'll see the molecular formula. It's C10H16. So 10 atoms of carbon and 16 of hydrogen. There's no oxygen there, none at all inside of a monoterpene. So this is really, really important. There's only CO2 in the air. There's not really any more complex forms uh, of carbon. They're typically in their monomer form, meaning there's only one and they're fully oxidized. So um, you're likely to get like, you know, methane gas and things like that. But for the purpose of plant biochemistry, um, we're going to look at CO2 specifically. So this is a form of carbon called fully reduced carbon, or I'm sorry, it's fully oxidized carbon because it has the oxygen, they're sort of taking up the, the spots that could be occupied by other elements that carbon can form relationships with. That's a sort of good way of looking at it. And then you'll notice in the monoterpenes, there's no oxygen, there's only hydrogen. So this is a pretty big fundamental difference in terms of two states of carbon. One's fully oxidized, the other is fully reduced. And the difference between reduction and oxidation chemistry literally defines all of biology. Every time that you take a breath in, there's oxidation chemistry happening and reduction chemistry if you choose to hold your breath and you build up some lactic acid in your muscles and you start to develop cramps those are a byproduct of um, you know reduced metabolites building up and you need to oxidize them by breathing in plants sort of have this inverse relationship they're trying to convert oxidized carbon into reduced carbon 
Um, so this is sort of the basic understanding that I think people have to have in order to really understand what our products are is um, it takes time for a plant to reduce carbon and it requires energy. It requires harvesting light energy from the sun, taking up molecules of water, splitting them, finding a way to get that chemical energy to then go towards the chemical reduction of CO2, very complex stuff. So this is how plant growth happens. And what we've been kind of thinking about over the past couple of years is, well, how do we optimize this process? Um, because as it turns out, carbon is accumulated uh, significantly more than any other element in the plants. And this is certainly true for cannabis, all of the active constituents, all cannabinoids are 80-ish percent carbon by weight and all mono and sesquiterpenes are 90% carbon. So to think that carbon is kind of like this micro or this like thing that doesn't really matter. No, it's 90% of all of your monoterpenes and is 80% of all of your cannabinoids. In fact, the rest of what a cannabinoid is comes from water, it comes from splitting water. So there's this idea out there that, you know, with the salt-based approach, for instance, that you need these macronutrients to increase the biomass. You need nitrogen, you need phosphorus, you need potassium, you know, th that's all true. However, you can take all of those, all the NPKs, CalMag, silica, all your trace elements, you can combine them together. You can multiply that number by five and you'll still have more carbon, just one element, than all of those other elements put together and multiplied by five. So this is why I think carbon is, a, is the number one macronutrient around which all other macronutrients revolve around. Everything has to do with carbon. Plants are utterly and indescribably obsessed with carbon. They're making terpenes, they're making cannabinoids, they're making all kinds of medicinal substances. And with the exception of some things like alkaloids, most of these substances are very, very heavy in carbon and don't contain anything ex except for hydrogen and oxygen. You know, as I mentioned, some of these alkaloids may contain some nitrogen, um, which can give them a sort of a stimulatory quality as well, like with caffeine, for instance. Um, so, you know, first off, the recognition that carbon is a macronutrient and the most important macronutrient by far um, gives us a slightly different perspective of how to actually approach plant nutrition. So this kind of gave inspiration to us making this uh, carbon-based fertilizer line. If we're going to feed the plant something, it better result in uh, accumulation of things that ultimately define the biomass. You know, these are like carbohydrates, these are cellulose, these are actual building blocks that the plant uses. And again, it doesn't matter what we're looking at, it always comes back to carbon. Um, so again, with the carbon thing, we'll kind of get into the chemistry a little bit more, but the, the sort of general way to look at it is that all the salt-based fertilizers out there don't have any carbon inside of them. You may get a little bit, you know, in fulvic acids and humic acids, certainly if you're using like a carbohydrate type of supplement or something like that. Um, but carbon chemistry is very complex. And so we need to look specifically at what those flavors of carbon are. What are those forms that we're feeding the plants? Uh, to contrast it with an organic fertilizer, a lot of people may say, well, can I add some kind of feather meal or alfalfa meal, bone meal, you know, some kind of assortment of meals into the soil and achieve the same effect? <clears throat> and I would say the answer is no, um, because you know, carbon chemistry is very complex, which we'll get into as well. But it's more about the solubility and the activity of that carbon. How much soluble carbon are you actually giving to your plants? And can you predict a sort of a relationship between, let's say, the carbon and the macronutrients can define a particular ratio that exists within them? Uh, ratios are very important. This is how plants grow. They have a macronutrient to carbon ratio that they like to kind of, you know, keep in check. Um, 
And then for all of the guys out there that like to do living soils and KNF, you know, you may know that there's an optimal or ideal carbon to nitrogen ratio to make sure your soil doesn't get too hot and it doesn't actually physically raise the temperature beyond what your plants are capable of handling. If you've got too much activity happening in the soil, it's gonna steam for sure. So you have to allow a certain amount of decomposition to occur. And in that decomposition process, you're really changing the ratios of some of these, you know, more active um, constituents of what's composting. Some of it is obviously released as various forms of gases. The nitrogen can be released or metabolized and the carbon just sort of accumulates and becomes for, you know, the, the building blocks of humic substances and things like that. Um, so, well, you know, it takes a biochar. I like biochar. I think biochar is good. One of the defining characteristics of biochar is that uh, it's produced in the absence of oxygen. So that it's an anoxic condition. And the reason this is important is because it does not allow the carbon to return in the form of CO2. This is critical because, again, it takes time and it requires massive amounts of energy. Um, I mean, think about it this way. Plants are like, um, you know, if you harvest, I'm just going to make up some numbers here. If you harvest two pounds dry off a plant, let's just assume it lost 90% in terms of moisture. So it weighed 20 pounds wet, roughly. Just so we can kind of do, you know, some, some easy math here. If you've got plants that are, you know, 20 pounds wet producing two pounds of dry flour, they're, you know, those are going to be drinking pretty ferociously in, uh, in you know, peak, peak flowering period. They're probably going to be drinking several gallons a day. And when you actually do the math, you realize, like, if I give one of these plants, you know, let's say three and a half to four gallons of water, I mean, I'm going to do some quick math here, you know, 8.34 times, let's say we give it four gallons of water, that's 33 pounds of water for an organism that weighs 20 pounds. And so you can go ahead and do the math and figure out how much water you would have to drink as a human if you wanted to keep up with what plants are doing. So the reason I bring this up is because imagine you have to lift up several hundred pounds of water every single day. Like that's not, that's a, it takes work. This physical hydraulic work that has to uh, occur and it requires energy. Um, so where does this energy come from? You know, it comes in the form of reduced carbon. Obviously this is the sort of basic, most fundamental constituent of um, plants and how they grow. So we chose to focus on the notion that we should deliver fully reduced carbon because that's ultimately what plants are striving to work with. That's the sort of um, universal currency for them is a reduced form of carbon. You know, hydrated, solubilized, obviously, but uh, the, the chemical reduction is pretty important because otherwise it's going to require time to break down. Like with organic fertilizers, it's going to require time. It's going to require energy. Microbes will have to get involved. They have enzymes. Those enzymes catalyze certain reactions, you know, in the presence of minerals and corresponding acids, let's say organic acids. Siderophores is, is one that is commonly used as a term for a compound that will chelate iron for plants. They're siderophores, so uh, they are iron chelators for the plants. Sorry, I think we got a little off track there. Oh, no worries. Chad's already loving this, by the way. They were like, he's coming in hot. <laughs> we're going to be doing this for a while. Already, yeah, we'll be already doing this for a while, so... Yeah, I think this carbon approach is, um, you know, you got to look at it a certain way. Like, let's say, for example, you're familiar with uh, like chitosan and chitin, some of these elicitors that are applied. You are? Okay, okay. Okay, so, you know, chitosan, I think, is a good one and chitin are a good one because, you know, chitin is um, an example of something that like it kind of people have done enough research on it to kind of adequately describe that there's this thing called the degree of polymerization. 
And basically what it refers to is, well, you know, how processed is your chitin? Because you can take like a crab shell, for instance, and you can add that into the soil, but that crab shell isn't that doesn't have anything that plants can like actively respond to. In order for it to be uh, an active uh, molecule for the plants, it has to be soluble in water. And so typically what happens is there's um, chitinase enzymes that certain microbes and fungi will produce, certainly plants and the roots will secrete chitinase enzymes. And these chitinase enzymes break chitin down into chitosan. And chitosan is a more active fraction. And so you can imagine like chitin is a polymer. It's just like a chain link fence, right? So as plants are kind of digesting this chitin down, really what they're doing is they're making, they're kind of shaving off individual links and making the overall chain smaller and smaller. This is what is referred to as the degree of polymerization is uh, how many links are in your chain, so to speak. And there's like, a, you know, Dalton's associated with degree of polymerization. It's they've got its own little nomenclature. I'm not, you know, 100% familiar with. But what I do know is that the degree of polymerization for chitin and chitosan is one of the indicating factors of biological efficacy. In other words, if you're outside of that really, really, mm, I don't know if it's a narrow range or how broad it is, but if you're outside of that sweet spot, you're going to have different levels of action. And if you've uh, gone below it, you're not really going to have much, if any, biological activity at all as a direct result of that particular molecule. So I think that's pretty interesting for, for all intents and purposes. So the reason I bring that up is because, you know, some people will say, well, elements are elements and calcium is calcium and nitrogen is nitrogen. So what are you doing with this carbon-based fertilizer? Um, and I will say not all nitrogen is the same. Not all calcium is the same. You know, not all uh, potassium is the same. Um, these, these elements and to kind of understand why and how these elements are not the same, really we have to actually build a little bit of connective tissue between carbon in terms of its macronutrient status in the plants and what's going on with the rest of these macronutrients, you know, elements we would otherwise consider macronutrients like nitrogen. What's going on? If carbon is, you know, accumulated in significantly higher quantities than nitrogen, well, what's the role of nitrogen in this in this game overall? How does nitrogen factor into things like terpene synthesis or cannabinoid biosynthesis? And the easiest way to look at it is to say that all of these elements, the rest of these elements are just tools that plants use to capture carbon, to store it, to move it around in different forms, um, and then also ultimately to form uh, terminal metabolites, um, compounds that are sort of produced in response to something. So the best example I can give with nitrogen is for any grower that's ever seen what a nitrogen deficiency looks like. You also know what it looks like when you correct that nitrogen deficiency. Your plants go from yellow to green. And that's an indication that they started to produce more chlorophyll. And well, what is the job of chlorophyll? Well, chlorophyll takes in energy from the lights and the sun. Well, what's that used for? Well, to fix CO2 ultimately, right? It splits water and then that energy gets used to convert CO2 into a sugar within the plants. If you don't have that step, it does not occur. And that's ultimately what defines plants. So it's a little bit ironic how if you give your plants some nitrogen, they're gonna say, thanks, I'm gonna take this nitrogen and I'm gonna use it to capture more carbon by powering this process right here that takes energy from the sun. Obviously it's not just carbon that gets reduced, nitrates also get reduced and so too do sulfates, but plants would prefer to have most of that reduction power available and going towards carbon. I think in an ideal circumstance, um, particularly for cannabis, what you find is that that reduction power helps increase the overall concentration of terpenes and cannabinoids because the plants have 
a greater ability to make those compounds anyways. Um, and so going back to nitrogen real quick, one of the other examples um, besides chlorophyll, which just so that we're perfectly clear, chlorophyll is one of the most abundant proteins on this planet, I think, if not the most abundant protein. <clears throat> so it's pretty important in nature. Um, and it just has sort of one job, so to speak, it captures energy from the sun. The second protein I want to talk about is one called rubisco. And kind of like chlorophyll rubisco um, happens to be the most abundant enzyme on earth by far. Um, so it's pretty uh, common out there in nature. And it too just has one job. Rubisco converts CO2 out of the air into phosphate sugars within the plants. And this is a really important step because it sort of signifies, like imagine you're a plant and you're growing, you have this gaseous environment around you. And in that gaseous environment, there's CO2 like floating around in the air, right? Plants don't like carbon that's not soluble. Just like on a hot summer day, if you've ever had a fizzy soda, you open it up, the carbon wants to leave. It does not want to stay in the water. But plants depend on water as a solute to transfer stuff around. That's kind of like what they use to solubilize things to pass them back and forth to various other organs, even cellular compartments in the plant. So having things be soluble in water is kind of really, really important for a plant to be able to do anything at all. So Rubisco does this monumentally important task of converting gaseous CO2 into soluble carbon in the form of a carbohydrate. And that hydrate part, a little bit ironic, right? With the, with the hydration and being soluble there, it's kind of tongue in cheek. It, it should stand to reason by itself, but it's also kind of fun to talk about this stuff. So, you know, here's an example yet again of one of the most vital and defining processes that a plant can undertake, which is scrubbing CO2, CO2 out of the air. Uh, it's powered by nitrogen, obviously, because it's an enzyme. The um, active site is actually magnesium. This is true for both chlorophyll and for rubisco, actually. So I should also, you know, to be fair, I should be talking about nitrogen and magnesium here. These are both tools that plants use to capture and store carbon. Uh, best examples are chlorophyll and rubisco. So the same is true of all of these other elements too. If you just look at the relationship that they have with carbon, you're going to find out, well, yeah, phosphorus is involved in carbon metabolism and turns out potassium, same thing. Potassium regulates just like an on off switch. Potassium goes around and it flips on more enzymes that are related to carbon metabolism than uh, pretty much any other element. I would argue calcium is pretty important for ca uh, cannabis plants too. But, you know, the, the whole point here is if people have ever had um, sporadic thoughts about how nutrients are metabolized by plants and like how they're important, why they're important, the glue that holds all that together is carbon metabolism. Plants will do nothing with an element if it had, does not have anything to do with carbon metabolism. It's just, it doesn't occur. Again, going back to nitrogen, perfect example. If you have, nit you have nitrogen gas in the air, right? The, about 78% of the air we're breathing in right now is nitrogen gas in the form of N2. Uh, in the soils, it can exist in ammoniacal form or it can exist in nitrate form. Um, obviously, urea fits into the ammoniacal form as well. But, you know, in the right conditions, uh, because there's so much oxygen present in the air that we breathe, same thing is true in the soil. So a lot of aerobic bacteria tend to convert most forms of nitrogen into its fully oxidized form, NO3 or nitrate. And, you know, to draw a parallel here with the CO2, there's also oxygen in NO3. And it's virtue by virtue of the uh, atmosphere containing a lot of oxygen. Oxygen likes to chemically attack things. It likes to oxidize things. So most of the time we're going to find our compounds are 
present in an oxidized state with oxygen molecules saturating it. And the whole goal for plants is to find a way to, to transform that, to knock the oxygen off and to chemically reduce it. So nitrates are a good example because that's ultimately how most uh, plants, especially cannabis, they've evolved some genetic mechanisms to actually be able to see three metabolism in plants. There's like C3 plants, there's C4 plants and camp plants basically, but cannabis plants have um, evolved these certain uh, mechanics that allow them to process high levels of nitrates. And in order to do that, they obviously take up the nitrates, but there's oxygen associated with that nitrogen that they need to break off in order for the nitrogen to actually become useful. So it undergoes this process of chemical reduction, just like the carbon out of there. But instead of CO2, the substrate is NO3. Obviously, there's different enzymes. There's a nitrate reductase enzyme, and then that becomes a nitrite, and then nitrite is finally fully reduced to an ammoniacal form. And that is actually the head group that gets joined with an organic acid. The two make a little bit of a sandwich, you can, you can call it, and they make an amine O acid. And the O acid, the amino acid, obviously, is a reference for organic acid. And the amine is a reference for the ammoniacal form of nitrogen. So here again is an example of nitrogen, NO3, useless for the plants. In order to become useful, they have to convert it to an amine group. So instead of having that negative charge, it gets converted to having a positive charge. That gets plugged in with a, a carbon or an organic acid skeleton. And now all of a sudden we've made an amino acid, glutamic acid, that becomes the um, substrate or building block of all other amino acids. So that moment where carbon is joined to nitrogen also defines and describes the moment in which nitrogen gas becomes used, or I'm sorry, nitrogen as an element becomes useful to plants. Otherwise, it's not useful, not useful at all. So uh, the carbon's more or less basically feeding everything in the soil first and then tending to the plant's needs. Is that what I'm taking in here? Well, carbon and the effect that carbon has on soils is pretty significant globally. Um, if you go back to the period when the first land plants started to colonize the planet, um, or the Vician period, I think is what it is, <clears throat> when the first bryophytes started to colonize the planet, really um, there was a massive change in the climate overall because these plants, uh, plants are masters of carbon chemistry. They do a really good job of sucking CO2 out of the air, converting it to more soluble form, like sugars, flavonoids, terpenes, cannabinoids, you name it, there's millions of compounds potentially that are out there very likely that are out there. Uh, a lot of these compounds get worked down from the leaves, which is sort of where the, all of this stuff is occurring, right? The inter interface between the gaseous forms of CO2 and the more soluble uh, phosphate sugars that plants are, are uh, you know, using to create that interface. Um, all that stuff is soluble. It gets transported down to the roots. And there's some exchange that happens with microbes and with beneficial fungi. So if the plants are looking for a particular type of uh, mineral or nutrient, or if there's, you know, oftentimes these microbes produce growth hormones like cytokinins. I'm familiar with some species of bacillus that will produce, even fungi will produce, you know, growth hormones. Um, they'll also produce active uh, ingredients for the plant's own secondary metabolic purposes. So it's really kind of interesting to see the interface happen. But a majority of the soil formation on planet Earth did occur as a result of the colonization of land plants on the planet. Prior to that, there was no soil. There was no interface for any of this stuff to occur. So 
as plants are growing, depositing a bunch of carbon in the ground, they're actually forming, they're creating soil. And if you look globally over the course of, you know, hundreds of millions of years, this is how soils and humic substances in soils get formed as, as a result of plant activity. It's literally the drawing down of bulk amounts of oxidized carbon from the atmosphere in the form of CO2 into the ground in the form of, uh, you know, even something as simple as compost, uh, all the way to the flavonoids and signaling molecules that are exchanged with microbes and fungi that help, you know, plants do what they do on a daily basis. I hope that answered your question. about Bob was asking. So let's, let's keep moving forward here. Uh, so where where how would it where are you harvesting your carbon form from your carbon source from? Where do you guys gather your well, you know, it kind of depends on the form of carbon. Um, you know, like you were talking about earlier, biochar. Um, you know, biochar is produced in the absence of oxygen. So typically when it's made and compressed, it has all of that carbon that's uh, sort of ready to go as far as structural components and aiding in soil chemistry, as far as that stuff goes. So, uh, you know, the type of carbon is, is very important for the plants. Primarily, where we're getting our forms of carbon from are with the plants that we work with. We're bringing in about four dozen species of plants. You know, there's three quarters of them are about, you know, terrestrial or land plants. And then one quarter of them are sea plants and algae. And the reason we're bringing those in is because obviously plants produce uh, metabolically active compounds. Plants produce all kinds of cool compounds besides terpenes and cannabinoids. There's all kinds of fascinating molecules in the plant kingdom. So. A lot of times some of these compounds can be used as medicines, for instance, therapeutically, because they have very potent effects. So really what we're doing is asking the question, how do we use these same plants or similar plants that are related to them, but not in the context of human health or medicine, but rather plant health and fertilizer chemistry? You know, is there some kind of, let's say, you know, equivalent of aspirin or something like that that can be you know, introduced as a dietary source to allow plants to better resist some of the stressors that might be faced in a commercial uh, cultivation facility. Because these facilities are pretty intense if you really think about it. I mean, with some of these guys that are running 1,500 to 2,000 ppms of CO2, I know a guy that's closer to 3,000 ppms of CO2 in his flowering room, and that's no joke. You know, that's a really intense grow environment. So you got to think as far as the light intensity that these plants get, uh, coupled with the intense amount of gas and the unnatural composition, obviously about 10 times, you know, eight to 10 times that normal atmospheric CO2 levels, it places a huge strain on a plant to grow very rapidly. Um, these are not natural circumstances at all. So you have to kind of try to find a way to adapt um, your grow techniques and your grow styles to the circumstances of the situation. So what happens out there in conventional standard agriculture may not actually be a very good practice for an indoor cannabis cultivator. Um, there's certain things that just don't translate over when you're talking about growing this particular crop if you actually have ever grown it on a serious scale before. So um, to kind of get back to it, you know, plants produce active metabolites. We're learning to work with these active metabolites in the context of uh, developing fertilizers. So like with our CalMag supplement, for instance, we're starting with orange peel. We've got stevia leaves. Um, it's kind of a fermented plant mixture. 
And really what we're doing is we're pulling compounds out of these plants that naturally occur and they can be used uh, successfully uh, when we're talking about making calcium chelates and magnesium chelates. And because they're of plant origin and plant-based, they, they exist in a format that is native to plants. Um, they have the same sort of organic acid profiles, the citric acids, the acetic acids, uh, cinnamic acids, you know, these are sort of ubiquitous in all plants. And so some of these derivatives are used by plants naturally as sort of like signaling molecules, I guess you could say. Um, so they kind of inform or instruct the plant what to do as opposed to just giving the plant like a piece of nitrogen and saying, well, here, figure it out for yourself. You can better enable the plant to then process that calcium into something like a cell wall. You know, you can sort of promote better nutrient metabolism by learning how to work with compounds derived from plants. I would say the most natural and best example is probably kelp extracts. Everyone's used a kelp extract before, not very rich in nitrogen or phosphorus. doesn't have a whole lot of macros, but um, it sure can help with heat stress and light intensity stress. So there's something going on inside of that kelp that helps the plants overcome these environmental stressors. And in some cases, they can you can take a plant that looks like it shouldn't be alive and you can restore it, you can remediate it, sometimes with the use of kelp extracts. Other, other times people use like other biostimulants, um, such as humic acids, fulvic acids are a good example. So, you know, this, this concept of what is a biostimulant and how does it work it needs to be fleshed out a little bit better, I think, um, you know, as, as far as figuring out what we do and, you know, how we do it, basically. Grown in Chant would like to know if you could go further in depth on fungi producing growth hormones and the ingredients for plants' secondary metabolite system. Sure, yeah, yeah. I think um, the, the fungal, the relationships between fungi and plants and also microbes and plants is um, mysterious to say the least. I think there's a lot of stuff that people have yet to understand about it. The researchers out there, even the people that are at the top of their game um, couldn't answer a, a whole lot when you actually started to get into the weeds. So for that reason, I, it's, it's kind of very um, exciting to be able to focus on something like this. So what we do know is that plants produce compounds like flavonoids specifically. Um, and they do this through photosynthesis, obviously, again, with the carbon, they'll reduce that carbon, they'll split the water, they'll make that particular molecule, there's enzymes that are associated with it, and all kinds of pathways kind of converge together to make it. But as the flavonoid travels down the roots and goes into the soil, um, it can be exchanged with certain fungi. And those fungi may use that flavonoid as a, a growth substrate. They may respond to it by increasing their biological activity. And so the plants have given a form of energy to the fungus. And the fungus in return will pass something back to the plant. In some cases, like with arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, in, in the context of uh, phosphorus starvation, you may see that there's mobilization of phosphorus and that the plants can better access it. Um, oftentimes, you'll find certain metabolites are produced, like I mentioned, cytokinins are produced by bacillus species. Um, fungi like trichoderma can also produce certain types of compounds that help decrease a plant sort of, uh, you know, or sort of increase the plant's resilience to stress. I should say that's probably a better way of framing it. So it's some of the active metabolites that are there. Some of them are going to be, you know, hormones uh, like cytokinins, perhaps others are going to be 
secondary metabolites uh, in and of themselves that plants can produce certain types of protein complexes, um, you know, things of that nature. So it, it, like I said, it's still a very mysterious relationship, but um, yeah, I hope that answered your question. I believe you did. I believe you did. I didn't mean to interrupt what you were going through. I just didn't want to miss the question. No worries. So. Yeah, no worries, man. This is this is kind of the fun part of the conversation, getting into you know what people think. And yeah, I think it's important people understand there's no, you know, carbon is is so important to a plant that the other elements aren't useful to a plant unless there's some work being done with carbon and carbon metabolism. Um, some of these signaling molecules and, and the way that they're formed is just really uh, exquisite in terms of how intricate it is. Like carotenoids are a good example. I think I always like talking about carotenoids and it's the pigment that is that orange pigment that uh, gives carrots their vivid color. Um, it's also present in all land plants. They have it um, even before chlorophyll starts to senesce. Carotenoids are present. They're vital actually because you know, the chlorophyll pigment is sitting and it's exposed to the energy that's coming in from the sunlight. And so oftentimes, uh, if that energy becomes too intense, it can start to kind of leak out. And this is a real problem because in the presence of oxygen, which is everywhere in this atmosphere, excess light energy can create reactive oxygen species like singlet oxygen and other free radicals. These are lethal to a cell you can denature the dna of pretty much any organism with singlet oxygen it is absolutely a life-stopping uh sort of risk that plants have to mitigate in their normal day-to-day -day metabolic activity so they need to access energy from the sun in the form of the light in the presence of oxygen which is seemingly a terrible thing to do because again the singlet oxygen is devastating to you know dna uh but plants have found a way to do it. They make these pigments called carotenoids. And these carotenoids will, they're engineered. They've got, like, if you look up carotenoids on Wikipedia, you'll see, like, this squiggle-like skeleton. And it has all these car conjugated double carbon bonds. And as the energy of the uh, light becomes too intense for chlorophyll, and as that light energy starts to leak, the carotenoids are kind of there to capture that excess light energy and dissipate it through those double carbon bonds. That's why they kind of glow orange in that, you know, in normal light, they kind of dissipate that as, as heat. Um, so there is a point where even carotenoids start to break down. You know, the molecules that are produced by plants to act as a safeguard against light intensity start to experience too much light intensity. And it's genius. I think it's beautiful how carotenoids are engineered. They have this sort of weak spot along their molecular skeleton that when the light energy becomes too intense, that weak spot will actually cleave and it will make a, the, the molecule, the carotenoid will physically, for lack of a better phrase, it will explode due to the, the amount of energy that was input into it. It just can't handle it. So it blows up. And when it blows up, it uh, turns into a compound called an apocarotenoid. And one such apocarotenoid is a hormone called abscisic acid, which tells the plants that it's time to stop growing. It's time to turn down the metabolism. So again, here's an example of carbon primarily because carotenoids are, are roughly 90, 80 to 90% carbon by weight. So they're mostly carbon, um, but they have this, this particular shape of carbon that can absorb a lot of excess light in intensity. And when that breaks, it 
functions as a, as a signaling molecule to tell the plant, hey, it's time to slow this down. Stop taking in so much light energy, close the stomata. You know, the plant's metabolism will start to drop in the presence of abscisic acid, which is the oxidative byproduct of carotenoid degradation or oxidation. So I just find that to be really remarkable to think that the safeguards, when the safeguards fail, they they produce more, you know, sort of safeguards. So plants are just remarkable at being able to to do this type of thing with carbon. So which do you think is better for soil for cannabis, a fungal or bacteria down there uh, type of environment? Hmm. I mean, I think it depends on what you're trying to achieve. The fungi certainly take a little bit longer to do their thing. They're more, you know, uh, of a long haul kind of approach. I think that if you're quickly working the soil between fast consecutive generations of cannabis plants, um, you're going to see benefit from having the right fungi in the soil. But I think generally speaking, it's true that you're going to see uh, more pronounced effects faster with microbes because the bacillus species and the lactobacillus species, um, those just tend to produce their effects a lot more rapidly. You know, the fungi take a little bit of time. So I think it ultimately comes down to what it is that a grower is trying to achieve. Uh, yeah. I think if, if it's about nutrient cycling, you know, you can look at having certain species of fungi. Fungi are really good at producing extracellular enzymes, so they can enrich the soil with a lot of biologically active enzymes, which are more broad spectrum than something like a bacillus species. But you may find, you know, there's a species called Bacillus methylotrophicus that's fantastic at making nitrogen a little bit more available to plants. And it can live in the phylosphere or it can live in the rhizosphere. Um, so there's, there's distinct advantages to working with both, I would say. And it's probably more likely that a bacillus dominant program, just, just for like most cultivators, you know, in the current nature and status of the cannabis industry, they're going to see, I think, more bang for their buck. But, you know, every, every grow is different. Every scenario is different. So, yeah, I would not make any blanket statements about it one or the other do your do your nutrients work well in all mediums they work really well in um like peat based mix um cocoa works really well too our products don't really work inside of a like a rock wool or something that has low cec or recirculating medium um just because of the way that they're designed they're incredibly biologically active and so Again, with the reduced carbon thing, you know, you can look at how nutrients are mobilized by microbes in the soil, and you can describe that via looking at the chemistry, you know, because as microbes do their work in the soil and as fungi do their work in the soil, really there's chemistry involved. And what is that chemistry? You know, what, what compounds are involved in that? Um, these are some of the things that we're looking at addressing and saying, well, I wonder if we can put that inside of a bottle you know, the relationship that a plant has with a microbe or a fungi that allows it to actually get that nutritional compound. I wonder if we can put that inside of a bottle. And I, I, the answer is absolutely yes. You know, the, the type of 
products that we have deliver carbon to the plants in excess of 3000 ppms of CO2. So even if you're just growing inside of your tent with no CO2 supplementation, by running our products, you're gonna get the same amount of carbon as you would get from over 3000 ppms of CO2 inside of your little grow tent. You don't have to have the CO2 there. Uh, but again, kind of going back to it, you know, your terpenes are mostly carbon by weight and your cannabinoids are mostly carbon by weight. So if you want more terpenes and if you want more cannabinoids, you're gonna have to find a way to put more carbon into the system. There's just no way around that. No way around it at all. This is why I think the salt-based approach is kind of like, hmm, you can get biomass, but you see a reduction in the quality. Why is that? There's no carbon in the mix. On the flip side, with organics, you tend to get higher quality, but lower yields. Well, why is that? Because there's carbon and the macronutrients are not as available as salt-based nitrates or phosphates or sulfates that are just like ready to be taken up and chemically processed by the plants. Um, the trick is though that there's no carbon inside of the, the salt. So you get this explosive growth, oftentimes in a purely synthetic system, like with rock wool, for instance, you're gonna have hollow stems. And that hollow stem thing is a big problem for powdery mildew and for aphids and other things that really like soft tissues in the plant. Um, you need you you don't need hollow stems, you need the opposite. You need very thick, full stems that have a lot of um, you know, pith inside of it um, for a number of reasons. So um, our products don't work well uh, in Rockwell, but work excellent inside of like a peat-based. I love ProMix HP. I think it's great. Or something that's got maybe a little bit of, you know, let's say a little bit of green sand or a pinch of biochar cut into it. You know, just something plain and simple. You can start with a clean slate. Um, the plant extracts that we're working with really help imbue the soil and infuse it with biological activity. So it eventually turns it into living soil. Uh, so that's what I'll say about that. You don't have to add anything. We've, we've got it all figured out. You don't even have to adjust the pH with our products and it does come out low. If you're using an RO system, the pH of our product line is going to come out somewhere around 4.5 to 5.0. And I always tell people don't adjust the pH, do not adjust the pH, water that in. Absolutely water it in. Um, our products don't burn the plants. They will not burn the plants. And it's because that carbon, 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 so very important. So it sounds like the perfect pair for the LED lighting that uh, it's very intense these days that uh, causes different types of blackouts in the plant depending on the height of the light anymore. Uh, that's basically what I'm understanding there. Because in the HIP lights, these are intense, but not mm -hmm. nearly as intense as a lot of the LEDs that we're working with now. A lot of them we're actually finding we have to turn them down to yep. actually yep. get the plants to function correctly. Yeah, and you're going to see, you know, an increased appetite for calcium and for nitrogen as well. The plants are just capable of getting the way that the light energy is dissipated with LEDs allows the plants to capture it, I think, a little bit more efficiently. And that really drives an increased sort of want to or increased ability to like they have this extra budget so to speak for chemical reduction because they got the extra light energy um and keep in mind too that most like conventional lights your high pressure sodiums those produce a lot of infrared those produce a lot of actual physical heat and the leds you know if you ask a manufacturer they'll say oh no no there's no heat but there's a reason that they have you know millions of square inches of you know surface area for their fixtures the leds do produce a lot of heat um just not as much infrared. So the ability to control the wavelength really allows you as a light manufacturer to take your watts and to spend them 
on producing light energy that is going to be used by the plant. That's why a thousand watt LED um, is, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, like reasonably speaking, a thousand watt LED is going to smoke a thousand watt HPS. And that has partially to do with, well, how much of that thousand watts is actually getting turned into just heat that you can't put your hand on top of the light because it's going to burn your hand. That's not useful for a plant, you know, versus the LEDs, how much of that thousand watts is being produced, uh, you know, being used to produce heat, not nearly as much. They still produce heat, but um, the increase in, in, uh, in sort of thermal efficiency um, there, I think is part of the reason that LEDs are a lot more effective, but because they can, you know, push more light uh, to the plants and really illuminate a larger sort of surface area of the, the leaves, uh, the chlorophyll becomes a lot more activated. They get more light energy. They can take up more water. So oftentimes you may hear that plants grown under LED lights also drink more water. Well, if they're if you're shining more light on them, it makes sense why they would want to split more water because that's what the light is used for, split water molecules. So if your lights become more efficient, your plants are going to get thirstier. They're going to want to drink more water. And if they want to drink more water, you better provide a lot of minerals for them like calcium to build more cellular structures because if they become deficient in calcium real fast, you're, you know, you're not going to do yourself any favors though. The plants are going to get thin. They're going to get frail. You're going to get a little weak. Um, one solution for this is to turn down the light intensity and watch them rebound, or you could correct the deficiency, add a little bit more calcium, let them kind of get um, more, uh, you know, grow more aggressively towards the lights and better resist that light stress. And then same thing with nitrogen, it's sort of responsible for the, the uh, proteins like chlorophyll and like Rubisco that ultimately do this dance, you know, take in light energy and produce magic sauce in the form of terpenes and cannabinoids. That's the name of the game, right? So if uh, a users are using your product, should they uh, worry about any kind of buildups? No, nope, no buildup. It's carbon based. <clears throat> so the same reason you don't have to adjust the pH, actually, um, it's not going to burn anything in the soil. Um, there's never any buildup as far as like salt particulates go. Um, our product line is extremely heavy in organics. Uh, it's all plant based. There's no animal byproducts and all of the plants we're actually bringing in whole. I mean, we're buying roots and leaves and bark, berries, stems, flowers. Uh, pistols of safflower, even just very, very specific parts that are produced by plants. Because again, these compounds are very fascinating and have fascinated humans for thousands of years. It's just, no one's really taken a look seriously and, and said, hey, can we take these compounds and use them in the context of agriculture rather than in the context of human nutrition uh, or in the context of, of uh, medicine? nutraceuticals, let's say something like that. So there's something to be said there, the way that the plants respond. And again, going back to the kelp extract thing, kelp is a fantastic example of a plant that people know a lot about, you know, just sort of at a layman's perspective, you know, kelp helps alleviate stress. Everyone knows that even if people don't know the specific mechanisms, you know, how it works or what are the, some, some of the exact mechanisms of action. Um, but yeah, I would say for people that are growing in beds, you're going to see um, substantial increases in the health of your soil. You're going to see a lot of healthy organic matter form. As our products break down, they don't turn into salts that lock out and create insoluble particulates. You know, on the contrary, actually, we, we create humic substances in the soil. So if you're in living soil, or if, you're, if you like to take care of your soil, you don't want to throw it away. 
between cycles. You can definitely use our full product line and you can feed with every watering. You never have to add plain water. Even when you flush, we have our finishing product resin bloom does not get um, does not get uh, taken up and like deposited inside of the leaf tissue. It's actually useful as a flushing agent. It has built-in salt binders and scrubbers that detoxify the soil, but also purge the plants kind of from the inside out. There's a cellular mechanism that you can use to kind of expunge all the bad stuff that you don't want to um, be accumulated inside of your plants at the end of their lifespan. And this is all towards the goal and effect of having super uh, clean uh, flower that burns white ash, smokes really, really well. Um, a lot of people think that you need to add just plain water. And I always tell them, well, that water works a lot better if you have uh, something like what's in our resin bloom. It's an organic acid-based potassium complex. It's got, it's primarily made with um, ginkgo leaf and with jasmine flower. And for, for those of your uh, viewers who may be a little bit savvy, they, they may have heard of something called jasminates or jasmonic acid. These are hormones that uh, cannabis plants naturally produce that regulate secondary metabolism, such as terpene biosynthesis and cannabinoid biosynthesis, yeah. So, as of late, we've kind of been talking about, it's a reoccurring subject of flush. So, me, myself, I think, in my, my opinion, if you're letting the plant go throughout the whole process, senescence will start to lock out what nutrients and go through its natural process do you suggest flushing process with your products you know it comes down to the intensity of the grow i think it's like this if you're a marathon runner and you're at the tail end of your stretch the last thing you want to do is not consume any electrolytes because that's going to put your body in a state of crashing right when you need to be strong and across the finish line i think plants are actually pretty similar in the sense that if you push them hard if i'm you know, talking about a commercial customer that actually needs to hit high yield in order to make payroll. Um, really, we're looking at a system that doesn't allow for any sacrifice in quality or yield. So the answer oftentimes is that the plants have to be pushed hard in veg. They have to be pushed hard in bloom because they have a high expectation set. And typically what that translates to at the end of bloom, let's say, you know, week seven on an eight week strain or week eight on a nine week strain, um, if that's the, the the time that the grower would typically just cut everything out and just start using plain water, um, there is uh, there's a loss of quality associated with that. Um, you want to keep potassium a little bit higher in the plants overall at the end of their lifespan for two reasons. One is that potassium is an electrolyte that helps plants exchange <clears throat> salts like sodium, for instance. If we're talking about flushing the plants and doing all the stuff anyways, this requires chemical work. Again, going back to it, this, this is gonna require energy. The plants, if they wanna you know, clean themselves or purge themselves, it requires a little bit of uh, work. And, and part of that is there's this exchange that typically happens because plants are all about balance. They have to maintain a balanced uh, charge or state of electrical charge. Uh, if that charge is disbalanced, you may get uh, you know, some pretty severe effects that happen in the cells, such as the severe dehydration of the cell, which you don't want to occur because then you're losing all of the weight of the buds. On the flip side, you want your plants to express healthy water metabolism. You want those levels, the water metabolism levels to remain high, especially in that last week of flowering, because if you notice your plant's metabolism is dropping, it could be a sign of something like a potassium deficiency. And if you added a pinch of potassium 
it would allow your plants to better maintain that electrical charge so that they can keep doing that metabolic work that naturally has to occur. You mentioned senescence. And I think that senescence is an interesting thing to talk about because senescence is in a, uh, it can sort of be uh, described by changes in the plant's uh, epigenetic state. You know, the, the plant is expressing different things. It's starting to go about its daily uh, and even hourly processes a little bit differently. So you have all of these things on the back end within the plant's DNA that are changing. Well, what is responsible for that change? What's driving that change? Potassium. Potassium as a regulating uh, compound, as a signaling compound, can turn on and off more enzymes than any other element. So if you're deficient in potassium at the end of the plant's life, really what it's doing is turning off processes that say, all right, it's time to, time to go to sleep. You know, we're done with the show. On the flip side, if you kept potassium levels um, adequate, I'm not going to say high because it's really not a high amount, but if you kept them adequate for the plants, really what you'd find is that they're drinking a little bit more water and they're drying out the soil a little bit faster. And they're not like growing per se, but you can tell that they're finishing a lot better overall. They just tend to like finish a lot stronger. They have a lot more vigor. Um, and as the plants cure in the jar, you're going to notice the longevity of those flowers goes through the roof. If you at the very tail end of the plant's life, respect the fact that it still needs electrolytes. Um, in order to achieve any kind of chemical work, it's gonna need that. So cutting everything out, again, is like the analogy of uh, the metaphor, the, the marathon runner. If you've been running super hard for 24 miles and the last two miles, you're just like, well, time to flush my body. That's not gonna, that's not gonna go so well for you. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate you for going through that there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I will say too that the plants naturally they have the sort of understanding that, you know, they 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 stop. There's so many things be, besides just like what are the macronutrients that you're putting into the plants, which dictates how they grow and what they're really um, doing with a certain particular element. A good example is nitrogen. You can give nitrogen to a veg plant and you can give nitrogen to a flowering plant. That flowering plant isn't necessarily gonna start growing leaves and you know, producing nitrogen, uh, uh, vegetative tissue again. A little bit more complex than just nitrogen, right? Maybe it's a photoperiod trigger that's involved in there too. Maybe it's gibberellins that are involved in hormones. They're involved too, but this is to say that nitrogen in the vegetative stage has a predictable output. Same thing within the flowering stage. If you're in week five, six, and the plants have already stopped stretching and they have too much nitrogen, you're going to see a little bit of additional leaf growth happen, and you're going to see mm, maybe a little bit more airiness in the buds, not as compact, tight, dense of a structure, maybe a little bit more airy and oddly shapen with a couple of extra leaves where they shouldn't be, maybe a little bit bigger than they should be, that type of stuff. You'll notice morphological differences uh, in the plants. Uh, these things can be a little bit subtle. So along the same lines, this potassium deficiency at the end of, of, of a plant's lifespan is also uh, somewhat invisible in the sense that you can not give potassium to the plants, you can water and they're still going to finish up for sure. Um, but if you gave them potassium, they would probably finish up better. They'd probably finish up stronger. And as long as you dehydrate that weed properly, you cure that flower properly and you respect it, when it comes time to smoke it, you're not going to have any potassium that's leftover potassium doesn't really get accumulated inside of the um, organ it doesn't become like an organic constituent of like the plant matter you know like calcium becomes a piece of a cell wall it's there that cell as long as you're dealing with plant matter you're dealing with a piece of calcium same thing of nitrogen you know it's a structural component 
but potassium may be a little bit different, not a structural component. So being able to dehydrate properly, I think is also uh, a mark or a sign of a really skilled grower, particularly if we're talking about a really skilled grower that can keep the throttle on the plants right up until harvest day. And I'm talking about doing some stuff that most people would be like, oh, you know, that will contribute to an off flavor. It's gonna taste saltier, it's gonna taste funky. Not at all. It may taste saltier and funkier if you don't use potassium and if you just use plain water. The American one in chat would like to know uh, which nutrients can help plants store for later. Uh, I mean, nitrogen is a good one. You know, plants store um, nitrogen in the form of amino acids. Depending on the ratio, the carbon to nitrogen ratio inside of them, some of them could be argued to be better. I think arginine is the one that has the most, the highest carbon to nitrogen ratio. So if you saw high amounts of arginine inside of a plant, it could be a, a one of the um, mechanisms for, you know, nitrogen um, storage inside of a plant in the form of amino acid. Carbon, uh, you know, you could look at certain types of substances like carbohydrates and organic acids as carbon pools or carbon stores for the plant. They're not really terminal metabolites like terpenes and cannabinoids are. You know, those, those have a distinct sort of purpose and distinct function. They're typically not repurposed or refunctionalized. Um, they're just kind of like downstream. They exist in a final finalized, like the plants did a bunch of work to get to that molecule. Whereas other molecules are kind of intermediary, they're transitionary, so they can be kind of repurposed. Um, and this is the benefit of us working with organic acids and organic acids are one of my <clears throat> favorite flavors of carbon because it is so ubiquitous to a plant. If we're looking at, uh, very simple organic acids like citrates, like acetates, for example, and some of their derivatives, um, we're dealing with a huge amount of, uh, metabolic activity in the plant. Not a whole lot of actual, like, you know, molecules you could say just consider them organic acids at large man they play such a vital role in the day-to-day -day normal metabolic activity of a plant and this is one of the ways that we uh, formulated our product line was the use of organic acids they're produced through microbial fermentation um, and also produced um, by the plants naturally so when the plants again when we're chelating and we're complexing certain types of minerals and nutrients really what we're trying to do is make those plant recognized and plant available going back to the example of nitrates being processed just because you you know if you've got a little bit of calcium nitrate and you dissolve that in water and you give it to a plant that doesn't mean that it's like bioavailable for the plant you know it's available to take up but there's still chemical work that has to be done on the flip side if you gave your plants a foliar spray of, of amino acids, the amino acids themselves may actually get taken up um, a, a lot differently. They may get taken up passively with almost no energy being spent because they're caught, kind of caught in the transpiration stream already. So uh, here's a form of nitrogen the plants don't necessarily have to break down in order to find useful because that work's already been done by a different plant. Um, presumably, you know, for us, this is the case because again, we're not using animal products. There's no blood meals or bone meals or anything like that. These are just uh, highly active fractions of plants that when applied on other plants, they have this remarkable effect on primary metabolism, on secondary metabolism and, and things like that. Hopefully that answered the question. 
It did. Ted is actually just loving you as a guest, by the way. So thank you. Thank well, you for all the great information so far, man. Yeah. They are yeah. they have said nothing but great things so far. So nice. Appreciate it. That's good. Yeah. And I just, I find some of this stuff, like, you know, especially for guys that are out there just trying to grow better quality stuff, like really being, becoming obsessed with carbon. And, and this is kind of what, you know, this has been a couple of years in the making. I've been kind of, you know, chasing this and kind of getting to a spot where I can even talk about it um, in a way that makes sense. And it, it just seems so simple now having gone through this process of doing, you know, all of these chelation reactions that were developed from scratch, modeling nature as sort of the, um, basis for these chemical reactions learning learning how it occurs in nature and then finding a way to re recreate that consistently and predictably and reliably to be able to put it into a bottle and, and sell it as a product out there that works better than anything else like this has been a very very complex journey a very crazy crazy time but overall through this entire process what i've learned is that it just comes down to carbon that that's it you know carbon nutrition is everything to cannabis plants so again for the guys that are you know, just trying to increase their, their terpenes, their cannabinoids, um, you know, becoming obsessed with carbon rather than with something like salts or even like the organic based um, approaches like that. That's really the, um, the thing that's going to change your game. It's really going to elevate um, your understanding of plants as well, because that's ultimately what plants are indescribably obsessed with is carbon chemistry. Um, they love carbon. They're more obsessed than I am, which is highly unusual. Well, the soil it is becoming more and more carbon depleted, isn't it? Isn't it uh, wise for car farmers now to do a little bit of carbon farming at one point in between crops, uh, if you will? Yeah, it depends on what you're trying to return to the soil. Um, you know, certain types of legumes are used oftentimes to form the, there's microbes that will, you know, work their way into soils that, you know, specialize in metabolizing certain things. Like let's say there's species of microbes that mm, specialize in fixing nitrogen out of the air. There's other ones that mine calcium out of the soil. There's ones that free up silicon from silicates and pass that on to plants. So in the soil, you've got this very complex web of activity that's happening with some microbes being better than others at certain tasks. Um, so the name of the game for all of them is, is carbon. They like carbon. They grow really well in the presence of not only carbon, but let's say certain certain flavors of carbon, certain types of carbon. Obviously sugars are a really good one for microbes uh, to grow in, but maybe sugars aren't the best thing for a fungal colony to grow in. Maybe they want something else. Maybe they prefer a more complex sugar source like cellulose or like lignin. Um, and this is certainly true. There are fungal species that prefer to digest more and more complex polymers um, rather than simple sugars. So. Uh, as these microbes and fungi are chasing carbon in the soil, it's really the plant that is passing all of that carbon in a bulk amount by drawing it out of the air through photosynthesis, making all of these compounds and then putting them into the soil. So as a, as a farmer, if you can support the process of the plants doing that, I think you're going to get phenomenal results, not only with whatever crop you're growing, but also with the soil that you're growing it in. This is, this is tricky though, because more and more it's becoming common practice to use salt-based fertilizers that have no carbon inside of them. And this creates uh, a weird predicament for plants, uh, both in the soil and in terms of um, what they're going to use the light energy for. You know, again, going back to the example with nitrates, 
plants only have so much chemical currency. They've only got so many dollars in their wallet and they can only spend those dollars on so many things. So when given the choice between spending their dollars on getting a piece of nitrogen or spending their dollars on getting a piece of carbon, um, again, in the context of terpene and cannabinoid farming, you would want the plants to fix the carbon. You would want them to reduce the carbon and make monoterpenes and cannabinoids out of that because that's going to sell a lot better than look at my chlorophyll concentration on my leaves, guys. Won't you buy my flower because it's got so much chlorophyll inside of it? People don't buy cannabis like that. So you don't want it. You don't want the plant's energy to go towards fixing elements that don't have much to do with cannabinoids and terpene biosynthesis. Um, you would want the plant's energy to go more towards that, the reduction power, that chemical power. So learning how to feed reduced forms of carbon, I think is absolutely critical um, to working with the plants. And it, you know, for us, like I said, it required us to actually manufacture and learn uh, entirely new manufacturing processes from scratch. Like the CalMag we're making, I think it's a really, really good example for people. It's, our CalMag is the only one out there on the market that has no nitrates, no phosphates, no sulfates, no chlorides, no carbonates, and no animal products inside of it. I mean, what else can you have inside of it, right? It's a plant-based organic acid fermentation formula. It has elemental calcium, highly soluble, extremely soluble, extremely soluble. And it's in a form that is recognized by the plants. We've kind of come to um, learn this very nuanced and particular quality about the, there's something about the orange peel that we're working with to make that product. And the chelate that we make is like this orange peel, organic acid sort of based product. And it has this interesting behavior of <clears throat> being deposited into cell walls at a really, really high rate. So what we found over the past couple of years is that when plants grow with our CalMag, uh, the appetite for calcium goes through the roof. I mean, put it this way, we have on our label, we guarantee that our CalMag is 6% calcium. So it's significantly more concentrated than most of the other options, which I think hang out around 3%. You may get some that are 4%, but those are all calcium nitrate based. Um, people that start using our CalMag, even though it's got a higher concentration of calcium at 6%, will ultimately end up using that in a higher milliliter dosage than they will their nitrate-based CalMags because the throughput is so large and it's so great and it's so smooth that the plants have a much larger appetite for calcium before they start to experience any limiting factors. If you're watering in a CalMag nitrate, you may start to notice the plants get burned maybe six mils, eight mils per gallon, 10 mils per gallon, something like that. Not with our, not with our product. Our CalMag yeah, you will probably be able to feed about two to three times more elemental calcium because of the way that calcium is processed. Again, with the nitrates, they have to be taken up and then there's nitrate reductase and the nitrite reductase and there's all the new ferrodoxin is involved as well. There's all these crazy like steps, biochemical steps. There's all this stuff happening and for what? To spend some chemical energy on reducing a nitrate form of calcium? Um, it just, it, you know, it, it doesn't really make any sense. But if you can give your plant something that as they take up, um, it allows them to throughput more of that calcium and deposit more of it inside of its cell walls, for instance, that would be really cool. And so the question then is, well, how do you do that? The answer is you have to give the plants a form of energy. Because if you're looking for a higher throughput, you have to help them along the way. And so in every single product that we make, because it's all carbon-based and it's chelated with carbon, all of it is reduced carbon meaning that we're giving free energy to the plants. Instead of the plants having to spend time and energy to 
fix CO2 out of the air, we'll give them the same amount of carbon as you would find in about 3000 ppms of CO2, except our form of carbon, we've already done the work that the plant would do. We've already chemically reduced it and we've already put it in a soluble form. That's what the solution is. You know, our CalMag, again, to go back to it, it's got a two to one ratio of carbon to minerals. So for every mineral element that your plants take up, they're getting two atoms or two pieces of carbon. And what this equates to is roughly that one mil per gallon of our CalMag fuel will give your plants about 100 ppm of CO2. So you can imagine an environment, let's say you're in a, let's say you're in a grow tent, you got LED lights, you're running a salt-based fertilizer and you have CO2 gas. I'm gonna run a couple of scenarios uh, by your audience here because I want them to kind of think about this critically, right? If you're in a sealed flowering room, you have high gas levels, you have high light intensity levels, and you have high EC levels. Let's just say you've dialed in those plants. EC is 3.0, PPFD is 1500, CO2 is 2000. Which I'm just making up some numbers here. What happens if you um, drop the EC on those plants? Well, they're very quickly gonna become deficient and they're gonna be pissed. They're not gonna like you. They're gonna say, screw you, give me more nutrients. So if you're at that step, there's one of two things you can do. You can either correct the EC and give them more EC, or you can back off on everything else. You can reduce the light intensity until the plants catch back up. This is oftentimes a common practice for people in veg that feed their plants a little bit too hard and they may burn them or something like that with excess feed. Um, they may try to back off the light intensity. Or alternatively, if there's not enough food and they're becoming deficient and they're starting to yellow, people will back off the light intensity. The easiest correction is to simply give it more fertilizer because the light intensity coupled with the fertilizer is what the plants need to meet in the middle. The only other variable there is the CO2. Imagine you had a sealed flowering room and instead of 1500 ppms or 2000 ppms of CO2, let's say we drop that. Let's say we go down to 100 ppms of CO2. What's gonna happen there? Plants aren't gonna grow at all. The plants will literally die because there's not enough CO2 in the air, there's not enough carbon, there's no building blocks for them to make cellulose, which is the basic building block of their tissues and of cell walls. Where does the carbon come from in a salt-based program? Nowhere. And so if you drop the CO2, massive restrictions and plant activities start to happen at the same time that you start to get macronutrient toxicities. That's the invisible part for, for people is that the, when, you, when you throttle the carbon to macronutrient ratio in a plant, you can create toxicities or you can create deficiencies. So let's just say hypothetically, you're one of those <clears throat> growers that uh, you know, you, you've taught your employees how to um, water the plants, but you're not exactly sure if, if, if they did it the right way. So you go in to check on your employees and you realize one of your employees fed one of the plants way too heavy. Like instead of an EC of 3.0, the EC came out 4.0. And you're like, oh crap, that's really hot. I'm gonna burn my plants, what do I do? The easiest thing to do is to jack up the CO2 levels, just crank up the CO2 levels. Because if you give the plants more gas to deal with, they'll take that fuel and they'll combine it and they'll reduce that carbon. Otherwise, we, we can go back to some of these other examples. You know, if we have plants that are uh, being grown in a high intensity environment, and we deplete the food source, they're gonna show deficiencies. If we crank down the lice and crank down the CO2, but crank up the EC, on the plants, we're gonna burn the plants. Too much EC, not enough light, not enough CO2, right? What happens if we crank up the EC and we crank up the lights and we crank up the CO2? The plants can kind of meet in the middle. 
It's not going to be the most efficient metabolism, but you won't burn them as a direct result of that. So carbon is this great big giant buffer. It's a balancing element that helps plants kind of figure out everything else about their primary and secondary metabolism. Even their responses to insect uh, and disease pressures can be regulated by how much carbon they have access to and how much carbon they have stored up in their system. I've heard it to be said that to utilize CO2 to the maximum, you pretty much have to live by that BDP charge. Is this pretty much a way to you know, skip that and like backdoor carbon to to the plants for areas that necessary growers like me that necessarily don't live by that chart? Yeah, yeah, and I would say VPD is just like the most efficient way. If you if you focus on VPD curve, uh, really what you're trying to do is optimize this process by which water is wicked out of the plant. Because think about it like this: when you water the roots, one function of the roots is to dehydrate the soil. There's this hydraulic activity that happens. They lift the water up, and that gets pushed out through the leaf surface. And so when your VPD is dialed in. Um, that process of lifting water out of the soil and metabolizing it across the leaf surface, that whole process um, is happening very smoothly. So the plants are like most geared towards doing it. You've got the right temperature, which dictates solubility of CO2 in the active site of rubisco and things like that. You've got the right humidity, uh, obviously very important for plants to kind of balance out their own internal cellular moisture concentration. Because think about it, they're picking up water from the roots and they're storing that inside of them. So they're kind of like swelling and bloating and they have to kind of think about how much water is gonna be processed at the leaf surface. They have to be sort of very intelligent and try to meter out exactly how this occurs. So if you're outside of the VPD curve, you may get some inefficiencies um, that occur in that primary metabolic pathway. Uh, but yeah, you know, the water metabolism thing is definitely died, tied directly to yield and quality. Because as I mentioned earlier, monoterpenes, sesquiterpenes, cannabinoids, these are all 80 to 90% carbon and the rest of their molecular weight comes from water. And so water metabolism, very, very important uh, defining characteristic of weight and yield. And this is also why going back to our earlier discussion about flushing, why I said it's critical to maintain uh, water me metabolism as high as you possibly can at the end of flowering, because that water metabolism is tied directly to terpene concentrations and cannabinoid concentrations. You can squeeze out a little bit of extra performance and get a little bit more magic sauce out of the plants if you treat this process with respect. So the water becomes very important for plants as they you know, lift it up, split it, and then basically create terpenes and cannabinoids out of that. Pancho Grown uh, would like to know uh, sugars in the trichome heads breaking down into organic acids. How does it affect the cannabinoids and terpenes? That's a phenomenal question, actually. Um, very, very glad that you asked that. So the, the primary function of the flowers is to produce sugars, basically. They're like sites of photosynthesis. They produce sugars, primarily sucrose and raffinose. Those are the two sort of basic sugar building blocks. Um, those get funneled from the sugar leaves via enzymatic transport, they get funneled through the trichome stalks. And the trichome stalks are just like freeways. Uh, you know, the, they, they have a fairly limited function overall. They're fairly specialized. 
and they don't have a lot of enzymatic activity besides transportation. So it's oftentimes, you know, there is some degree of activity that occurs outside of that, but primarily the stalks themselves serve to transport uh, sugars from the sites of photosynthesis where they're being produced to the actual inside of the trichome head where we find all of the terpene synthase and cannabinoid synthase enzymes. This is where they're going to be most concentrated. So the sugars themselves get broken down through at least two pathways, glycolysis uh, being one of them, um, and then oxidative pentose phosphate path pathway being the other one. Um, you know, those sugars are broken down into organic acids, and those organic acids ultimately become the building blocks for terpenes and cannabinoids. And the, the process may seem a little bit complex, and people may have this like mysterious, like, what is an organic acid? Uh, I always tell people, well, what's the final step of cannabinoid? Like, what is the final step of curing your cannabinoids? It's decarboxylation. It's removing an organic acid from the equation. So think about this as the essence of ultimately, like, how did that organic acid get into the equation in the first place? If as a grower, when I when I'm drying my plants, I'm literally just decarboxylating and removing that organic acid. Well, let's talk about how it made its way into the equation in the first place. This happens in the trichome heads when the sugars are transported up to these active sites and these enzymes start to break them down and to produce various metabolites that then get funneled through pathways. There's a couple of pathways involved. Um, the terpene pathway, uh, mevalonic acid pathway, obviously that's the one that's most familiar to people. There's one called the phenylpropanoid pathway, um, which is very uh, important too. That one gives rise to pigments like anthocyanins in plants. Um, that one also gives rise to ketones and ketone bodies are critical because cannabinoids are not terpenes. Cannabinoids are half terpene and half phenolic compounds. So really there's two parents involved in the equation. One parent is a terpene parent and then the other parent is a phenylpropanoid parent. Uh, more accurately, it's olive acid, which is, you know, like type three or type four polyketide or something like that. There's synthase enzymes that were sort of uh, isolated and identified not too long ago that, um, you know, were shown to be ketone, ketone enzymes, ketide enzymes. They're not, they're not, uh, they're not terpenes. So really what we're looking at here is molecules that, um, excuse me, cannabinoids specifically, these are molecules that uh, are the result of two pathways. And both of those pathways require organic acids as uh, sort of steps along the way to the formation of these particular compounds. Obviously with terpenes, it's a little bit different. Um, once it's passed in acetyl coenzyme A, I think it goes into isoprene. And then from isoprene, they get kind of linked head to tail. There's some activity that occurs there with um, scaffolding enzymes that come in and do the final tailoring work to kind of modify the structure and give it its final form. But, you know, by and large, the sugars are brought in, broken down, and funneled through various pathways. Those pathways terminate and end with particular metabolites being produced. And how those metabolites are produced really comes down to a very complex question of signaling compounds and tailoring enzymes produced on an epigenetic level, um, things that are, you know, probably a little bit too deep to dive into the, for this evening at least. Hancho's reply to that was, this is amazing information. Thank you so much for answering my question. Yeah, absolutely. You're welcome. Yeah. 
And, you know, there's, there's something to be said about the concept of bricks boosting or, or boosting the sugar load in your plants um, along the lines of the primary purpose of flowers in mid to late stages of flowering is to produce sugars for the plant anyways, because those sugars get broken down and the, the breakdown of that becomes the building blocks of terpenes and cannabinoids. Um, so there is something to be said about giving your plants a little bit of sugars. We make a, for our PK booster peak bloom, um, we're making a pretty unique artichoke based molasses that goes inside of it. And this artichoke based sugar is very, very unique. Uh, you know, carbohydrates, I think over the course of the next five to 10 years, I think people will start to look at carbohydrates more like signaling molecules because it does have some, some of these sugars, some of these carbohydrates are in fact signaling molecules. They, they tend to possess these properties that impact entire organisms uh, like plants. I mean, they, they have a plant-wide impact. It's not just like a localized uh, response. The reason I bring that up is because most of the times, you know, it's easy for us to get lost in these discussions where we talk about sugar as a substrate. You know, the plants just eat sugar, they consume it, they break it down. It kind of gives it a very one-dimensional and flat tone. And it's another thing altogether to say, well, sugars can act like hormones. You know, they can kind of stimulate this, this metabolic response in a plant. Because for most people, it's like, well, what are you talking about? What, you know, can you give me an example of that? And I would say, yeah, kelp sugars. Kelp sugars are a great example. Compounds produced, you know, some carbohydrates produced by kelp that when you spray it on cannabis plants, they have this remarkable uh, systemic response that has nothing to do with just sugar as a substrate. You know, that wouldn't be enough to explain the physiological response that we're seeing as a result of some of these extracts being applied. So chitin, I think, is another great example of uh, a polymer, a uh, sugar polymer. Technically, it is a polysaccharide that induces a pretty profound response in plants. But again, it has nothing to do with, was it a substrate that was it like a building block? It has less to do with that, more to do with its sort of um, biochemical effects within the DNA of a plant. So these are all very interesting um, ideas to perceive. The artichoke for us has been remarkable as far as demonstrating that we can improve phosphorylation activities in plants. And phosphorylation is key for terpene biosynthesis and for phenylpropanoid activity. It, you know, as plants do work, basically, I think a lot of people know like phosphorus is the, the energy currency of a plant. They say, you know, phosphorus is like the battery of a plant. It's like the charge of a plant. Um, as plants do work, they require the movement of these phosphate groups through a process called phosphorylation. Um, and this phosphorylation allows the ATP energy to kind of be passed uh, downstream certain reactions and then regenerated. Uh, and then, you know, it can be recycled and sort of reused for something else. So it, it takes a, a large amount of effort, this phosphorylation activity. And so plants, typically in flowering, people will expose their plants to PK boosters. They'll just give them a lot of phosphorus, a lot of potassium. But they don't understand that it's really more about phosphorylation energy rather than phosphorus as an element that's doing something. You, you, you have to look at the framework and the context under which phosphorylation occurs. And that's where I think our artichoke biostimulant that we use to make peak bloom is a lot more um, biologically active than, than some of these like just basic sugar or molasses based products um, or even any like a salt based PK booster. I think we've done something with that product that lets the plants respond so vigorously um, that people will see the results. I mean, the plants will just physically swell up because um, basically, you know, long story short, this 
artichoke sugar. Uh, they're called fructooligosaccharides. It's kind of a funny long word, but it just basically means that it's a long chain sugar. It's got many, many parts to it. That's the oligo uh, portion of it, the oligosaccharide. Um, this metabolizes in a very interesting and unique way that gives a massive amount of, um, it's like a biostimulant type of effect in the soil. You know, there's a lot of these microbes that become active as a result of the presence of this artichoke sugar. And it's not, I don't think it's that mysterious, really. I think artichoke has been used as a prebiotic fiber for a long time, for thousands of years. It's already been used to stimulate beneficial microbial activity in the human gut. Um, if you've got some imbalances with, you know, internal microbes or something like that, oftentimes you can, you know, take a little bit of artichoke or an artichoke-based supplement and the prebiotic fibers tend to like correct the, the chemistry happening inside of your own gut. And this is very much so true of what happens in the soil is that the, the prebiotic fibers and the fructooligosaccharides help condition the soil naturally, help kind of allow microbes to better express themselves more selectively, but also for the purpose of a plant, it allows for this phosphorylation activity to occur. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting to see what we can do with some of these plants in the context of macronutrients and fertilizer and, and actually getting them to increase weights and quality significantly. Well, you guys definitely know what's going on with the plants. So I guess it is good time to start talking about some of these products. Let's, mm -hmm. let's start from, let's start from the ground up there. Do you guys offer like a, a microbial product? something to put the microbes in or do you products just uh, allow them the microbes in your soil to thrive? Um, it's a little bit of both. We have about a dozen species of bacillus uh, that we're working into our um, product root anchor. Root anchor is kind of our sea plant and humic acid meets the bacillus microbial consortia. You know, it's all three of those kind of wrapped up into one. Um, and then that being said, all of our products have food sources for beneficial microbes and for beneficial fungi that are native to the soil. So if you're just trying to culture what's naturally growing and what naturally exists in the soil, then uh, our products are definitely going to help with that. Like I said, at the end of the day, it's about four dozen species of plants in total. Obviously, most of them are terrestrial. We've got a little bit of aquatic plants in there too. This makes for a very complex and diverse set of uh, compounds that are metabolically active in the soil for fungi, for worms, for microbes, even for other plants. Uh, as, as you know, we all are aware plants and the roots um, themselves will produce signaling molecules to kind of interact with other plants in their neighboring environment too. So learning how to work with these plants in that context will certainly open up the diversity of chemistry in the soil. So you don't need to add anything necessarily with our products, but we certainly don't see a detriment if people wanna continue to add some of their own beneficial fungal teas, compost teas, whatever kind of microbial inoculants they like. There's always historically been good, strong synergy, you know, with those. So what does the product line consist of? Uh, what are the products that you do of? Well, we've got a base nutrient. It's primer A and B. And that one is got a fine-tuned ratio of macro and micronutrients. That's suitable across the full lifespan of the plant. So you don't need a separate veg AB and a bloom AB. 
Um, this one is typically useful for people that, you know, start with fairly inert soil and they're looking for a high intensity um, type of program for their plants. They're, you know, looking to get three, four pounds per thousand watts or something like that. And we need to be able to address the macronutrients in that regard. Um, most of our customers that, you know, use the full product line really, really like that relative to other base nutrients because ours has carbon, the others don't. That one is also made with extracts of, um, we've got some juniper in there and then some lavender as well. Uh, so yeah, really, really good A and B supplement. It's got CalMag inside of it that's already baked in. Um, this is, I think, a really important thing to kind of go back to something you mentioned earlier about LED lights. You know, we had this opportunity, fantastic opportunity to develop our uh, program sort of in conjunction with some guys that were doing some really cool work with uh, LED lights at the time. And what we learned uh, about cannabis is very much so true under LEDs, but also true just generally, even if you're growing under HPS lights, is that cannabis plants are calcium hogs. They need a lot of calcium. So in our base nutrient, we have, we guarantee four and a half percent calcium, which I think is pretty high for a base nutrient. And in addition to that, our CalMag supplement, we guarantee at 6% calcium. So uh, between our base nutrient and the CalMag supplement, we definitely offer significantly more calcium than any other product line out there by far, without a doubt, without a doubt. Two reasons for that. One is that when you start shoving uh, carbon inside of your plant. Again, going back to these hypothetical examples of us being inside of sealed flowering rooms, if you have high levels of CO2 and high levels of light intensity, you're going to need a higher macronutrient load to get the plants to metabolize properly. If you don't have a high CO2 and you crank up that EC, you're going to burn your plants because they don't have enough carbon. So that's the Goldilocks equation is how do you find that proper carbon to macronutrient ratio? Very difficult to do if you're feeding salt-based macronutrients and you're feeding CO2 in the air because now you've got two dials. You've got two throttles that you have to turn. One of them is your gaseous CO2 and the other is your PPMs of fertilizer going in. What if you could actually tie those two together so you can control the EC and the CO2 in relation to each other or the amount of carbon, I should say, not CO2, but the amount of carbon that you're giving your plants. If you could dial those in together, that means whenever you feed your plants a higher EC, you're automatically giving them more carbon. This will create a buffering effect automatically for the plants. So this is why people like our A and B, I think, better than uh, any other product line. We're, we're the only one that is putting carbon inside of there and allowing this type of chemistry to occur. We're giving the plants free energy because we've already reduced the carbon for them. So that being said, you know, besides the primer A and B, which are our base nutrients, we have the, the CalMag supplement, very unique product. As I mentioned earlier, it's the only one on the market with no nitrates, no phosphates, no sulfates, no chlorides, no carbonates, no animal products. You won't find another one out there that's like that. Uh, it's made with orange peel and stevia in that regard. Our silica product is also really cool. I, I do want to kind of talk about that one a little bit too. Um, the CalMag we had mentioned briefly earlier, but the silica product is interesting because that one's made with horsetail and hibiscus flowers. And for, you know, all intents and purposes, silicon chemistry is very, very complex. Um, it's hard to talk about it without getting into a whole subject on silicon just by itself. But the, the best way to think about silicon is that it's very quick to um, spontaneously condense, meaning it doesn't just like lock out in a linear sense, but rather it tends to 
speciate. It'll grow over time. It'll get bigger. It'll get more insoluble. It'll just become more and more of a nuisance to deal with for, for the plants. And so naturally in the soils, as silica is hanging out in the soil and plants have to kind of work with it and figure it out, the concentration of soluble silicic acid remains fairly low, approximately 100 parts per million, um, just in terms of solubility in water. Changes a little bit when you were talking about adding um, minerals like calcium, for example, or magnesium that will precipitate, you know, magnesium will precipitate with silica and make green sand, magnesium silicate, calcium and silica will make fireproof drywall. That's what calcium silicate is. Uh, there's other elements that will have like aluminum, for example, has an interaction with silica. So, you know, the whole point of taking up silicon for the plants um, is that it will, it will provide some kind of mechanical or chemical benefit for them. Part of it is that silicon can be, uh, can replace carbon uh, in certain contexts. So it's very, very valuable for the plants to be able to replace carbon with silicon if it talk, if, if it means that they're going to save energy as in the formation of cell walls, for instance, silicon can sometimes be substituted for carbon. And this is why like when you read marketing information for silica products, you'll see this term like it prevents lodging in plants. Well, what does it mean to lodge? It means that if as the plants are growing, if the sun is really intense on them and it starts to dehydrate them, let's say you're going from a grape to a raisin, but we're talking about inside of the plant cell, this dehydration inside of the plant cell will physically cause the structure of the cell to collapse because it's lost, it's shrunk, it's shriveled, right? So there's this cavitation effect that starts to happen where the integrity of the plant's cellular structure starts to change as a result of water loss and it will start to wilt. The plant will physically wilt. And in certain cases, you can get actual damage to the organs, a, a really extreme dehydration. Um, you get irreversible damage basically that happens. So the way that silicon comes in is that it, it's like a piece of glass. It prevents the plants from collapsing in on themselves. It prevents them from lodging because you have a piece of glass effectively that's holding the plant up. And so it's not capable of, you know, that silicon can support the weight and it's not going to um, wilt nearly as much. This is one of the mechanisms of action there. Um, but all these fancy like orthosilicic acid products, um, they're pretty expensive typically. They can they can cost a whole bunch. And then typically the other flavors are like your sodium silicates and your potassium silicates. Um, and they have all kinds of crazy use instructions like add them first or don't add them in with silica or, you know, you know, spin in three circles counterclockwise and pray to the silicon gods that your mix isn't going to lock out. Or I don't know exactly what the crazy instructions are, but people have their own way of making silicon work. Um, and the reason for that specifically is because most of these silica products out there, they're not, uh, they're not manufactured in such a way that prevents the silicon from um, reacting with some of the other nutritional elements. Cannabis loves nutrients. It loves calcium. It likes magnesium. It needs all of these charged elements. And these charged elements can interfere with silicon and create some stuff that is not very useful for plants. So the question is, well, how do I get this into the plant? And I think we found a really cool way to complex um, silica in such a way with organic acids derived from plants so that as our silicon source dehydrates in the soil, it doesn't form a silicate, it doesn't precipitate out to be like a flaky salt. It actually turns into orthosilicic acid and maintains a very high degree of solubility. So it's all about silica chemistry and how you can transform that. Uh, and I think the reason that one is 
you know, so good is because it's the one of the most cost-effective silica products out there on the market. I think even retail prices, 45 bucks a gallon for a product that behaves, we, we guarantee, I think, 4% silica inside of their silicon inside of there. And it behaves like an orthosilicic acid product. Um, the parent material is a potassium silicate, but that is true of all of the silica products that are out there on the market with the exception of the magnesium um, silicates and some of the ones that are like the calcium silicates that are produced as sort of industrial byproducts, you know. Um, potassium silicate is a great parent material. It's what everyone uses, including the guys that manufacture like uh, PowerSI. Um, starts off as a potassium so, silicate. Is there a wait time after you mix your nutrients before you can add it to the plants when you've added the silica? And when is a good time to add the silica when mixing nutrients? Um, you can, with our nutrients, you can add silica in whatever order you want. I always do A, B, CalMag, silica. I just kind of go down the chart. Uh, you'd never have to adjust the pH. Again, if you're using reverse osmosis treated water, your pH is going to come out fairly low. It'll be 4.5 to 5.0-ish. Don't adjust the pH. You, you water that and you go right away. So there's no, um, I always recommend to mix the feed water and apply it immediately. This very, very biologically active. The moment that our products get diluted, they're already starting to work. There's some microbe that's taking advantage of these uh, active ingredients. They're very, very biologically active. So you don't have to aerate the products. You don't have to adjust the pH. You don't have to worry about silica precipitation. Uh, you don't have to worry about any of that. The only thing you have to do is mix the products and apply them literally as fast as you can, and then just make sure that your lines are clean. That's it. Make sure your lines are clean. Everything's flushed out. You don't have a bunch of biofilm growing inside of the lines. Um, if you if you just stay organized and you stay clean as a grower, you're going to experience phenomenal results. Our products will take care of everything. You don't have to add microbes. You don't have to add sugars. You don't have to add surfactants. You don't have to add a CalMag. You don't have to add anything. Almost sounds too good to be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, you know, it does. But uh, I think it's it's just something that it's not, you know, because I've been asked a question before along the lines of, you know, uh, how did you guys figure this out? And, and why are there so many fertilizer manufacturers that, haven't yet figured this out. Um, and I think the easiest answer is that it's not what we're looking at, it's how we're looking at it. It's just a matter of perspective. Um, you ask any one of these nutrient guys, you know, their opinions on terpenes and cannabinoids, I doubt any of them will come back and tell you, well, they're mostly carbon. Monoterpenes and sesquiterpenes, 90% cannabinoids, 80%. That would be one of the last things that they tell you. They'll tell you all this other fancy stuff about terpenes and isoprene and pathways and you know, they'll, they'll try to like kind of get lost in the complexity because it's very complex stuff. And so it's very easy to just like, wow, you know, kind of look at the awe and, and stand sort of in amazement as this really, really complex thing. But ultimately you can kind of look around all of that and, and you can say, well, it's 90% carbon. So we have to sort of, when we're talking about ways to improve quality and to increase yield, I know that a lot of brands out there say that they can do it but then they don't provide the mechanical explanation for how they do it. And I'm sitting here showing people like, let's look under the hood. You guys want to see what we're bringing to the table. We're bringing over 3000 PPMs of soluble carbon that's been fully reduced. And in a lot of ways, all of these species of carbon that we're working with, these organic acids, 
in some contexts, the carbohydrates and the various other uh, substances that were driving surfactants included in that as well. Um, these compounds are very useful and very relevant for plant metabolic purposes. And I guarantee you, I absolutely guarantee you, supplying organic acids to your plants most definitely will get them to increase the terpene and cannabinoid concentrations. Why? Because the whole purpose, we just kind of went into this, the whole purpose of what flowers do, their whole enzymatic purpose of a flower in mid to late stages of bloom is to make sugars that can be broken down into those organic acids. So why not give them organic acids in their, in their transpiration stream passively? You know, this is the sort of thing that I think a lot of people have overlooked because in conventional and standard agriculture, uh, the, the status quo has always been, let's give macronutrients. And I think we're the first company that's really serious about stopping everyone dead in their tracks and saying, you guys have it wrong. I'm sorry, but with respect to what everyone's done, all the great ideas that have come out of agriculture in the past several decades, they kind of missed it a little bit and didn't bring this full circle to like this aha moment of, aha, it's all about carbon. It's all about carbon. And again, for cannabis plants, what a beautiful plant. There's no better context. You know, everyone knows and appreciates and understands terpenes and cannabinoids. But did you know that all of those things are mostly carbon and nothing else? There's no nitrogen, no phosphorus, no potassium, no calcium, no magnesium. So if growers are trying to add all of these elements and think that they're going to get more terpenes and cannabinoids, I would ask them this. I would ask them, can you correct a nitrogen deficiency by adding more phosphorus? They would say no. Uh, you, you need more nitrogen to correct a nitrogen deficiency. You, can't, you can add as much phosphorus as you want. You will never correct that nitrogen deficiency. Well, if your plants aren't producing a lot of terpenes and cannabinoids, that's a carbon deficiency. Again, they're mostly carbon. So if you don't get enough of them, you didn't get enough carbon. So how do you expect to correct a carbon deficiency by adding something that's not carbon? You, you see what I'm getting at? Like this is push towards it. And that's why I think most commercial cultivation uh, models have landed people inside of sealed rooms with a lot of CO2 gas, a lot of it. You know, the more synthetic you're growing, the more likely you are to be pushing 1500 to 2000 ppms of CO2 because at the end of the day, you, you need that carbon load coming into the plants and onto the plants. Otherwise, you literally cannot make the turbines and the cannabinoids. You will have a carbon deficiency. Your plants will not test high. They will look great. They'll look like a million bucks, but no one wants to smoke chlorophyll. Sorry. <laughs> so just out of curiosity, as I sit here and look at this bucket of seeds, Mm-hmm. Not that I'm a breeder, but I know quite a few. What nutrients are necessarily responsible for the production of seeds? And do you necessarily make a, a breeder line that would uh, help for some big, fatter, plumper seeds? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question, too. Um, I don't want to disclose any of uh, the, the secrets that breeders have um developed over time, I think that anyone who's done some serious breeding work kind of knows that you can't take the same nutrient program uh, as you can with um, plants that you're trying to cultivate for flower. You know, the flowering plants uh, respond a little bit differently and they require a different fertilizer regimen. So I'll say the biggest difference um, between, without giving away too much, the biggest difference between 
the seed production plants versus the the flowering plants themselves is going to be in the amount of phosphorus that you give them the phosphorus um it, it, it higher concentrations does make more sense when you're growing plants for seed because most of that phosphorus is stored in those seeds um, this is true of, of cereal grains in particular and grain crops um, you're likely to find phosphorus is metabolized towards the later half of um, the plant's life that you know as it's metabolized that phosphorus gets stored in the form of a phytate or with phytic acid it's an organic acid produced by plants that uh, will allow the phosphorus to remain stored in a particular form until the subsequent generation and then through enzymatic activity um, that uh, phosphorus is sort of released and then the plants have the ability to access it and then can use it for phosphorylation and for things like that so this is also why if you looked at if you did a nutrient analysis of like sunflower seeds pumpkin seeds um, even hemp seeds you know these seeds contain higher amounts of phosphorus um, then, you know, let's say most of the other parts of the plant, which may contain more nitrogen and more calcium. But uh, yeah, the, the seeds, phosphorus is a, is a huge critical factor for seed production too. And, and really the integrity of genetic material that's passed on to the subsequent generation um, is almost or can be defined by phosphorus. If you've got phosphorus deficiencies, you're going to probably uh, pass or you, I should say that the plants may, under under the context of a phosphorus deficiency, the plants could pass some broken instructions onto the next generation. So you wouldn't get a perfect preservation or transfer of that genetic material. You'd have some, you know, deficiencies because of the phosphorus uh, and the way that that sort of, you know, relates to, to uh, transcription. Chad saying, tell, tell, no... No secrets, no secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it just it comes down to cultivation um, and, and learning learning to wick what you want to see out of the plants. And it's less about pushing them to do something and more about kind of pulling them into a certain ability to do something. This is the whole point of the VPD curve, right? You want to you try to pull your plants into the sweet spot. You don't want to try to like forcibly push them. You want to set everything up around them to be just right so that they can naturally get into this groove into the cycle where everything is just kind of streamlined and maximized and optimized. Um, same thing is true of breeding. I think people start to understand that some of these macronutrients work a little bit differently, like the phosphorus being required in slightly higher amounts. Uh, you so know, that, that's what it is. Foliar, a little bit of phosphorus through a uh, flower for seed production. Yeah, I, I certainly would. Uh, it, you know, it depends ultimately um how far you want to push foliar sprays into into flowering um i think it can be done a lot further into flowering than people typically do it but then again i never make the recommendation professionally i've never made the recommendation to anyone to use our products as foliar sprays beyond week two or three of flowering i say in in this kind of context typically it's best to stop around that point but when we're getting into something a little bit more nuanced like breeding projects there may be a real need to do foliar applications you know even in weeks five and potentially even week six depending on what we want to see from the plants because again that flower is not going to get um, consumed the whole point is to deliver the nutrients that are required to successfully propagate the next generation across thousands of seeds and if we want a good gene pool to hunt from um, if we find a re really good set of parents and we combine those 
really what we want is maximum expression on the back end. Um, it's a little bit less relevant how, you know, is the soil chemistry okay? Is, is, it, uh, is the EC a little bit too high? Is there a little bit of salt buildup? That stuff is kind of secondary, I think, just to growers that want to produce for seed. That's what they're really looking for is maximum output and throughput. Seeds the treasure at that point. That's why I kind of asked about the boiler there. Mm -hmm. um, just because I think it's funny and somewhat true, Honcho for, uh, 760 is asking, ask him what strains he's growing. There's no way he knows this much about this plant and doesn't smoke or grow himself. And I, I kind of agree. You, you're pretty knowledgeable on the plant. Do you indulge? If you don't mind me asking, or do you grow yourself yeah. a little bit for yourself? Of course. Yeah. I like, I like good flour. I like hash rosin. I like live resin. Um, you know, I've been consuming for, for a while and I can appreciate the nuance to bits. Uh, I'm also, you know, big into post-processing. I think that uh, how cannabinoids can be transformed over time is uh, I'll give an inspirational example with monoterpenes um, here in a minute, but right now I don't have a garden that's up and running, unfortunately. Um, it is something that's probably going to happen again sometime soon, but I've got a couple of um, genetics that I'm, you know, sort of stocking up on and, and I'm going to do a little bit of phenol hunting. I think ultimately here in the next little bit, what we're going to do is a project that lets us phenol hunt and combine certain genetics and fine tune those genetics for our fertilizer program. Cause uh, there's something about our fertilizer and the way that it, it interacts with plants on their DNA level that really allows us to express these characteristics. They're typically fairly well conserved in the cannabis genome. Like I could send you terpene um, test results and you can look at these, the breakdown of some of these terpenes. And a lot of them are fairly uncommon to be produced in cannabis, let alone in the concentrations that we're finding that they're produced in. And, you know, the explanation for that, again, kind of go, to go back to it is we have these flavors of carbon that are typically missing from indoor cultivation environments where you're growing in rock wool or some inert media and you're just feeding salt-based fertilizer. That stuff accounts for such a small portion of the natural chemistry that plants face on a daily basis, such that if you're out there in a wild or natural setting, the types of terpenes that are produced by the plants are going to be more broad and diverse because they got that more broad and diverse set of signals coming in, more bugs, more um, environmental conditions, more stuff in the air, more stuff in the soil, just more stuff around everywhere. It's not so like isolated and you know, separate from everything else. Um, so the expression of uh, terpenes ultimately comes down to the sort of inputs. Um, and what we're finding again is that a lot of the strains, um, particularly cup winners from like the 90s and you know late 80s, early 90s, um, some of the stuff that was coming out of Europe was just remarkable. And in terms of its vigor, in terms of its health, and I feel like going back in time a little bit to explore some of those gene pools again uh, with this fertilizer line is going to let us find the right phenos and select the right um, characteristics that we want to see in flower that's you know grown with our stuff so yeah that's that's where i'm at personally with with the grow yeah it's definitely uh, a waste to not hear you growing because obviously you could be putting some amazing fire out there <laughs> for sure it's gonna so yeah basically what you're telling me is uh by using your products it helps us get the widest range of terpenes ultimately 
providing the plant in its maximum defense. A uh, wider range of terpenes for the toolbox to ward off things in its defenses. Uh, would you say there's some truth to that? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that if by using our products, um, you know, you're going to see the maximum possible expression of the plants, not only because they got the right signals and stimulating compounds from the natural, you know, set of full, full spectrum, broad spectrum extracts that we're working with, with our plants. Um, but also because of the way that we've combined them with the macronutrients that we, we work with, we know all of our chelation reactions, they're done in house from scratch. We're not using anybody else's intermediary ingredients. It's nobody else's, you know, formulas or ideas. These are all ours from scratch and it's specifically tailored for cannabis uh, biochemistry and specifically for the terps and the cannabinoids. So let me see if I can pull up, actually, I've got some test results that we can kind of look at and we may be able to better determine here. Um, let's see here. I'll show you guys some examples. Vapor fuel terpenes. This is one of our customers that uh, has been on our program for, oh, probably two and a half years now. Let me see if I can, can you, can you see the ter the uh, test result for the terpenes? Absolutely. Okay, so you see it's 8.21% terpenes down here, total terpenes? Yes. Let's see if I can zoom in a little bit for some of your guests, 8.21%. And if you look here, you'll see, you know, there's terpenes that were detected, valencine, obviously for valencia oranges, there's alpha humulene, um, beta pinene, alpha pinene, asabalol, terpinaline, and so on and so forth. You go down the list and myrcene is down here. This one's pretty common. Here's one, this, this pharmacine here, beta pharmacine, cis beta pharmacine, alpha pharmacine. These are very high levels of pharmacine for plants and also for this norolidol. Um, limonene is a more common one, obviously. So this is uh, an example of, you know, one of our customers, again, using our products, having dialed things in over the course of, you know, a couple of years now, um, they're using our products and they're liking the results that they're seeing because they find these types of terpenes come out in the flowers. And we've gotten to a spot where we've, with all of the flowers that they're growing it, uh, you know, it ends up being somewhere between five to 8% terpenes on the, on the actual dry flower. So, and then the cannabinoids actually, let me show you guys too. So, so you can kind of, We'll actually go through all of these. Um, I've got a you know a whole bunch here that we can just quickly take a look at. Vapor fuel terps. See here, we'll try to open up all of these. Okay, so vapor fuel. This is the terpenes we just looked at. Um, this is a wedding cake cannabinoids. You see the total cannabinoids on the wedding cake was about 36.81%. The same exact wedding cake tested at 4.95% terpenes. You see a lot of myrcene here again. Limonene is pretty high. Um, sabonine or sabonine, or I'm sorry, this is beta caryophylline here. This one's also pretty high. And then again with the farnesine here, this is one of the ones that you don't typically find produced in such high concentrations. This is above 1.0% total pharmacy on these flowers, which gives it a really interesting floral kind of characteristic. Um, Deadhead, this is one of my favorite strains that they grow. 
30.5% total cannabinoids. And if you look at the terps, 5.97% terps, look at this beta caryophylline. That's 1.28% of just beta caryophylline. It's a single terpene. It's 1.28% on dry flower, which is incredible because it wasn't that long ago where people were getting a total of 1% to 2% terpenes on flower. So to have that be expressed as just one is pretty remarkable. And again, here with the farnesine, very unusual to have such high concentrations. Here we're dealing with something that's over 2% total uh, terpenes just in that one fraction. Dog walker has a very, very good for. Uh, as far as the, the plant's natural internal metabolism. And, or terpenes that we may be used. Um, you know, farnesine is like a floral kind of, you know, smells a little bit flowery. It smells a little bit like apples, I think, as well. It's got one of the characteristic smells of it, but it is used as a sort of, a, I guess you could say, as a preservative for plants. It's like a antioxidant that the plants produce. And I, I personally feel, um, having seen some of the flower that these guys produce, here's that uh, dog walker terp profile. You see that terpinaline is insane through the roof. For those of you guys that like terpinaline out there, this strain is phenomenal. It'll blow your minds. Um, but the farnesine, I think, personally, what I've come to experience is that this contributes to the uh, sort of the longevity of flower. You know, if you're trying to age flower and cure flower for a long period of time, let's say six to eight months, like it used to be done, like a really, really slow, long cure, the farnesine really helps preserve the integrity of the flower and prevents the microbes from getting in and uh, contaminating it. So you get this um, really nice effect of the flower curing extremely well over time. And it's not, you know, I'm not saying it's 100% scientific. I'm not saying that these three elements or these three terpenes are responsible for it. It's just something anecdotally that I've seen, like, hey, the, the farnesine helps prevent the growth of um, compounds or like, a, I'm sorry, the growth of microbes. And it also helps prevent the oxidation of some of the stuff that you don't want oxidized. Rocket fuel tested at 35.39% total cannabinoids. It got 4.41% terpenes, very high uh, on limonene, very high on beta caryophylline, extremely high on myrcene. Myrcene is very good, probably one of my favorites. Seven stars tested 28.5% total cannabinoids <clears throat> with about 4.28% total terpenes. Um, and then finally, here's the cannabinoids for that vapor fuel, that same one we looked at initially that tested at 8.21% total terpenes, it got 34.5% total cannabinoids. Um, so I want to do some math for people here real quick. If you look at this number, this 34.5% right here, and you take that uh, and you multiply it by, um, well, because, you know, cannabinoids are 80% carbon by weight. So we basically want to take 80% of this number right here. And then we want to combine that with 90% of 8.21 because these terpenes by and large are 90% carbon. So if someone's telling us we have 8% terpenes and of that 8% terpenes, 90% of this weight is, is carbon, then we can quickly figure out, uh, it, it's going to be very easy for us to figure out how much carbon is in the plants. So with that vapor fuel, 8.21% terpenes at 90% carbon, translates to about 33 and a half grams of carbon for every pound of flour, right? I'm assuming it's 454 grams 
of flour. So if I gave you 454 grams of flour and I said, hey, you know, 10% of that is terpenes, it'd be very easy to do the math and say, well, that's 45.4 grams of carbon that went into that. Um, oh, I'm sorry, not, not 45.4, that, that, you know, basically 90% of, of that, um, an additional 10% off of that. So it'd be like 40-ish grams of carbon went into that. So with this vapor fuel, again, 33 and a half grams of carbon went into the terpenes. If you do the cannabinoids, it tests at 34 and a half, and those cannabinoids are about 80% carbon by weight. And that ends up being about just over a quarter pound of carbon for every, um, for every pound of flour that was grown. Well, you take your 125-ish grams and you take your 33 and a half-ish grams, you, you combine those together. And out of that full pound of flour, over one third of it is just a single element, which is trippy. That's the mind blowing part. You would never look at a pound of high quality flour. Again, 34.5% cannabinoids, super frosty, super loud at 8.21% terps. I've seen this flour, it's remarkable. It's very, very loud and very much so in your face. You would never look at that and think to yourself, one third of that is just one element and nothing more. It's very, very like, hmm, I don't know if that's true or not. Well, it is. And we've only counted the terpenes and the cannabinoids. We haven't even counted cellulose. Cellulose is the most abundant polymer inside of a plant. And cellulose is like 50% carbon-ish, maybe 60% carbon. Um, so again, very heavy carbon sink there too. So if you take the, the biomass of the plant and you weigh it out, you're dealing with mostly carbon ultimately. And again, with the flower, I give you a pound of really high quality flour. The higher quality that flour is, the more carbon is in it, the less of all of the other stuff there is. In fact, it gets so high quality that if we're talking about concentrates and extracts, you know, the resins have been separated from the glands and the rest of the biomass. The cannabinoids become a concentrated, like with actual live resin extracts or with hash rosin. Um, these things are even more valuable than just the dry flour because they have more terpenes, they have more cannabinoids. So it's like, if you, if you want to get these concentrations up naturally in the plant, you have to, you have to give the plants more carbon. That's ultimately what it's going to come down to. And I think learning how to work with carbon as a macronutrient over the past couple of years has led us to this understanding of how we can throttle these massive concentrations and how we can really dial in systems to allow for that to happen when we don't need anything really intense. Because again, there's no need for a sealed flowering room when we can supplement about 3000 PPMs of CO2 equivalent in through the roots, the plants are going to take it up. They're going to metabolize it uh, and they're going to access it just like they would if they had CO2 coming across the leaf surface. There's no need to sacrifice the quality for the yield at that point. It makes so much sense. It just leaves you with the question, why other manufacturers aren't following in your footsteps? Um, I would say that carbon chemistry is very complex and learning how to work with carbon in the context of a fertilizer first, presumably you have to um, know something about organic chemistry. And I think a lot of, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the salt-based guys that are out there, they don't, they shy away from organic chemistry because it's very complex stuff. When you start getting carbon factored in, it's like Pandora's box just opened up and it is just so difficult to have anything make sense in a linear fashion. There are no rules. The only rule is that there are no rules pretty much with carbon chemistry. Um, 
some things happen that's just it doesn't make sense um other things happen very predictable very well defined uh so yeah i think part of it and and uh, you know to be fair to um the rest of the fertilizer brands out there and, and the rest of our competition um the stuff about plants and how plants grow is actually um somewhat still in its infancy we we still have a lot to learn globally about how plants actually do these things and how exactly they achieve this type of chemical work uh i feel like oftentimes people misunderstand or misperceive that just because we're capable of identifying that, that plants produce these compounds you know through like mass um, spectrometers you know we've got some instruments that will help us quantify like all right these terpenes are being produced by the plants um, that doesn't mean that we have a thorough understanding of how they're made on the contrary actually there's a lot of examples i could point out about how it's um, very uh, sort of elusive this process of terpene biosynthesis and, and terpene development i think taxol is a great example of a terpene that has yet to be discovered um, as far as like a, an efficient way of uh, synthesizing it um, and really understanding how plants make it. So for a little bit of context, taxol is a is a terpene produced uh, in the Pacific Northwest naturally by a tree. It's the Pacific yew tree and it's produced in the bark. It's a very, very powerful medicinal and therapeutic compound that's been studied for probably about 30 years now because scientists want to try to figure out how to synthesize it in a lab. They don't want to go out there and harvest um, the tree in the wild because it, it is damaging to the tree and it does uh, kill it. It does unfortunately do damage to it. So um, scientists have a vested interest in figuring out how to synthesize it in a lab. The only problem is that it can't really be done. There's like three dozen or so different um, processes that have been developed by parties from around the world, scientists from the around the world for the course of three or four decades now have all kind of come together and they've all sort of put forward their ideas about how to do this. Um, none of them are capable of producing any amount of taxol that's even slightly significant. There's like three dozen, you know, different processing um, methodologies and all of them produce something like 30 milligrams of the drug in total at the very most. The global annual supply for taxol, the global annual demand in the pharmaceutical industry is somewhere around 10 billion milligrams not 30. So here is an example of the best and brightest minds around the world, basically infinite money that's funding them, figuring out the first pharmaceutical company that figures out a totally synthetic version of Taxol will patent it and they will make billions of dollars. So of course they, they have a vested interest in getting it synthesized. The plants are um, masters of carbon chemistry and this sort of total synthesis has proved to be very elusive and humans, despite our best efforts, cannot do it as efficiently as a plant that just grows wild in the Pacific Northwest. So that's that's one example of one compound. The, the, uh, there's another one, actually, quinine uh, from cinchona tree bark. And then cinchona trees grow in South America, and uh, they produce this anti-malaria compound called quinine. It's one of the most important medicines ever, ever discovered. Um, it was used to eradicate uh, diseases and and I think in, in every single continent on this planet, on every single continent on this planet. So to say that quinine is a, is a vital medicine is kind of an understatement. It's like saying oxygen is important for humans. Um, quinine is essential. So it took uh, researchers 150 years to figure out how to synthesize quinine in a lab because there's particular steps 
you know, again, every single step is characterized. People have said, right, this is the this is the first step, this is the second step, this is the third step. Being able to identify them and characterize them is entirely different than being able to actually go through those steps yourself. So it took 150 years for people to learn how to synthesize quinine in a lab. And even to this day, that process is so energy intensive and it is so ineffective that the best starting material is still to this day for one of the most important medicines on the planet, still the tree bark. Because of the tree bark, Cinchona tree does it better than humans can do it better. The third and last example I'll offer you is one that probably hits a little bit more closely to home and that's synthetic cannabinoids like Marinol and all of these other, I don't know if there's been too many of them that have been successful, but you remember in like the late nineties, early two thousands, there's this big push for like synthetic cannabinoids, like FDA approved THC and all this stuff. And they ended up not working at all because humans thought, well, I know what a cannabinoid is. I know what it looks like on paper. I know it's molecular weight. And so I'm just going to make it in a lab. Well, they try to synthesize it in the lab and there's something, there's this little X factor that gets thrown in. Now, all of a sudden, it's not just about how many atoms you have and what their particular um, you know, configuration is. It's about the steps that you take to get there. How do those um, carbocation-driven um, rearrangements occur? You know, how does the how does this molecule get changed? What are the enzymes that are acting on it? How does it get acted on? How does it change across these series of reactions? These things are so poorly understood, so poorly understood that we can't even reverse engineer medicines like cannabinoids. I mean, we know cannabinoids very well. People have been experiencing cannabinoids for thousands of years and you know, scientists have been studying them for as long as they've been able to, basically going back to the 60s in Israel. Um, Cannabinoid research has been um, something of, of interest to any, every scientist around the world. Yet, despite that, we still don't know how to make, we still don't know basics about it. Like, how are all these things synthesized naturally in plants? It took us a very long time just to figure out how all of tolic acid was cyclized and how that became uh, CBG. Um, and I think it was actually in 2016, if I recall correctly, at the University of Kyoto, they found what they call DAB proteins that are responsible for uh, inducing the cyclization of olive-tol into olive-tolic acid. And that was like the, that was one of the missing steps. It was finally like this aha moment where researchers had, you know, finally answered the question, like, well, how do plants, how do cannabis plants make cannabinoids? There's this like gap in the understanding of how olive-tol turned into olive-tolic acid. Um, 2016, not even, you know, five years ago, that's not that long ago. So we're still discovering, we're still learning, we're still uh, acquiring new information. So I would say to um, the companies out there that think they have it figured out, you don't. Um, this is part of figuring it out, you know, going through these motions and learning about the more important aspects that are oftentimes more nuanced, more overlooked, you know, like the, this whole concept about carbon metabolism is a, it's a really interesting one. Um, and I will say too, there's something that I wanted to mention earlier about uh, the way that these carbon containing compounds are produced like monoterpenes, all monoterpenes are C10H16. They have 10 atoms of carbon, 16 atoms of hydrogen. And the thing that's really important about that is that there's obviously no oxygen. The, the plants don't want to oxidize that reduced carbon. It would um, spell disaster for them. But the, also ironically enough, these terpenes are produced in sites like the trichomes themselves are as far away as you can get from the plant's primary metabolic centers. So they're closest to the oxygen 
where the damage might occur. Um, so there's something about these terpenes and how they're produced that uh, to me suggests that terpenes are specifically engineered by plants to accept the transformational energy of oxygen in the presence of light. This is how hash is aged is what I'm trying to get at the scientific basis for how aging hash occurs and how you can potentiate some of these compounds. The myrcene that's found in cannabis plants in the right context, if it's exposed to light and oxygen, will undergo a conformational change. It'll change its structure, it'll change its shape slightly, and it becomes a metabolite of myrcene that is significantly more potent than myrcene. There was a paper written about this a couple of years ago. The authors had titled this compound hashanine, and they had determined that it was the substance which gave hash its characteristic kind of um, look and smell and also its potency. And it was a derivative of myrcene that had undergone some transformational change in the presence of light and oxygen. So I feel like, you know, in a lot of ways, when we're talking about cannabinoids and carrying them, we need to expose the cannabinoid to oxygen in order to decarboxylate it, right? We got to wick that organic acid off in order to activate the THC and to make it biologically active for the human nervous system. Uh, because if you're smoking non-decarboxylated cannabis, it's not going to be the same experience as if you've got something that's properly decarboxylated and cured. So this, this, uh, this concept of uh, transformation in the presence of oxygen is very important especially when we're talking about curing flowers for decarboxylation, we want to get that potency right. Or on the flip side, if we're making hash, we want to make sure that the amount of energy we input in the system isn't going to break those molecules down and off-gas the terpenes because nobody wants muted terp uh, profile. You know, nobody wants to open up hash rosin and have no smell come out. Um, it was a sign of bad processing technique. So to preserve those terpenes, you have to input the right amount of energy and not input too much because otherwise you're going to sort of break the system and it's going to result in off-gassing of terpenes and degradation of cannabinoids. Uh, but this is a synergistic system. You know, the plants are producing these compounds in relation to one another because they want to uh, have this sort of entourage effect happen. The flavonoids inhibit oxidation of the you know, cannabinoids and the terpenes as well inside of the trichome head and all these things are constantly uh, interfacing with each other in order to achieve this sort of maximum expression of, you know, metabolites, reduced carbon metabolites. I think it's going to be quite a while before they, uh, they unlock the complete cannabinoid system in marijuana. In our bodies, it's, it's one thing to figure out and map chart how, what they are and what they do, but then you have to match it up to a body that's endocannabinoid system is constantly changing from birth. As we grow older, it changes its function uh, throughout our age and according to our health. So it's kind of hard to correlate, you know, what the, the, the cannabinoids are going to do to your present state of age and health, uh, it, that's going to be forever changing. So how do you, you know, that seems like a lifetime, or at least our lifetime before they can, you know, completely map out the whole system and its effects on the human body, I think. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately these um, compounds, <clears throat> they have interactions with each other. 
This is what I think is meant by the entourage effect in the context of the human experience. The idea is that there's these terpenes that will amplify the effects of these cannabinoids. Uh, my question has always been, well, why is the plant producing them? The plant's not producing them for us. The plant doesn't produce the terpenes for our nervous system. The plant has its own use for the terpenes. The plant has its own use for the cannabinoids. And in some cases, terpenes like limonene can be used to uh, ward off certain types of disease pressures, like fungal disease pressures. Limonene actually has really interesting toxicity against um, soft-bodied insects and, and, and fungi in particular. Uh, this type of toxicity is called phase toxicity. And limonene basically will, uh, you know, sometimes you have like chemical attacks, you have like oxidation or reduction, you have like a chemical burn that occurs. There's some like chemical thing that happened there. Um, with limonene and the way that it exhibits this toxicity against soft-bodied insects, there's no chemical reaction. It's not like this molecule attacks that molecule and the two produce heat and this, you know, reaction occurs and there's this other compound produced at the end of it. That's not what happens. Limonene has no chemical interaction. Limonene just literally floats through and it expands. It's like a solvent. It starts to melt the chitin that makes up the, the um, cell walls of fungi and also the exoskeleton of uh, certain soft-bodied insects. Um, it'll start to attack that. And it doesn't attack it chemically. It attacks it by being, it's like in a particular phase. It exists in a phase where it will melt, it will penetrate through the um, barriers, those protective barriers, and it will gradually loosen the filaments holding everything together and loosen everything to the point where it becomes very soft and possible to um, break down simply by touching it. This is also the the sort of the the solvent effect, right? For those of you who have used limonene as a cleaning agent, you may know that it's a very good degreaser and it's a phenomenal cleaning compound. Well, kind of the same thing. There's some there's some phase chemistry going on, not molecular chemistry, there's some phase chemistry going on where you get this solvent-like effect from using limonene as a cleaner or a degreaser or something like that. So in the same way, limonene can be used to kind of um, successfully ward off disease pressures. Cannabis plants are very aware of that. They are very... Uh, and not only just cannabis, but other plants too, they're very well aware of that. They can, you know, use that to their advantage in the right context. Not saying it works in, in every context, but some, some plants, if they're exposed to the right types of insects, will start producing more limonene, for example, to help ward that off. Or if there's aphids or thrips, they may produce neurolidol. That's, that's one that's been kind of tied to thrips in particular. So, um, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, I forget where I was going with that. Oh, so how are we doing on time here? I know you said you could do an hour or so, but we're pushing two and a half hours. We still good to roll a little bit longer? Yeah, if there's if there's questions, I can stay for a little bit longer. I'll probably hang out for another 15 or so minutes. Um, and then we should probably try to wrap it up. Okay, okay. Well, you guys heard him in chat. If you guys have any questions, please throw them up now. I have a question for you. Do you have any uh, suggestions for literature uh, during uh, explain going a little bit deeper into carbon and carbon uh, functions in soil? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would, 
I, I personally really like the Journal of Experimental Botany at Oxford. I think that's a great resource. A lot of what you're going to find there is kind of new and cutting edge, and very little of it may, um, you know, make sense at face value. But, you know, what I learned uh, from JXB when I first started reading it was that if I learn how to ask questions, I don't have to understand the material. First off, that's the most important thing I think people should know about these. When you're reading scientific articles, don't ever try to read a scientific article to derive a piece of information. Always read a scientific article to ask a question. Come up with one question, because then you take that question, you go to Google, and you keep the, you keep pushing this um, process of learning. As you read one article, you ask a question like, ah, that makes me think about this. You type that in. There's another article that pops up. You read that. It may answer your question, but now you've got a new question. Maybe you start, you know, you keep doing this. This is how you continue to learn about things. Um, so as far as it specifically relates to like carbon and macronutrients, I don't think there's any like solid body of literature that I can point someone to and say, this is the Holy Grail. I would say it's more like a collection of uh, article articles that you're going to find. I mean, if you typed in, um, if you went to Google and you typed in potassium and carbon metabolism in plants, you'd probably find a very, very big list of studies that you know, talk about how potassium turns on and off all these enzymes and it functions like this regulatory switch to, you know, process this carbon metabolism feat within a plant. You'll find stuff like that, but there's nothing that's really going to like tie everything together. Um, yeah. So with the individual elements, I would say if someone's curious about it, they should definitely look up um, that. You know, like type in like whatever your nutrient is, you know, phosphorus or nitrogen or magnesium and carbon metabolism in plants. Type that into Google and I think that should give you a fairly good place to start. How would you uh, compare your nutrients to somebody that is making their own like KNF or Judean, uh nutrients? Uh, would you think it it's right up there just as good as maybe better because it's a little carbon based. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I would say our products are inspired by natural farming techniques. They're, you know, first and foremost, um, going to be rooted in sustainable and regenerative and renewable practices wherever we can. Um, just as a one quick example, a lot of the plants that we're sourcing, not all of them, but you know, we're, we're trying to do better um, with this as we move forward in time. And obviously it's a work in progress, but we're working with a lot of uh, farmers and farming co-ops. So like the hibiscus flowers that we get, those come to us straight from the farmer. And so every time that somebody buys our products, they are directly supporting sustainable and regenerative agriculture. And it's through supporting some of our partners that provide us with the plants we're fortunate enough to be able to bring in to work with. Um, this, this type of stuff typically doesn't happen. You know, if you're dealing with some bagged salts or something like that, I understand why the KNF guys may not want to buy bottled products because they wouldn't want to support, you know, synthetic chemicals and the destruction of the planet and all this um, type of activity that's, you know, should not define our species. Um, but on the flip side, I would also say that our products achieve a level of precision that KNF cannot achieve. And there's a little bit something ironic about KNF preparations ultimately, which is that even if you're making your own KNF stuff, don't you have to bottle it? what are you going to keep it in? You know, there's some, there's some vessel or some vehicle that you have to store your FPJ or your FFJ or your FFA or your FAA, I should say, 
inside of. And so this idea of not wanting to use bottled products, but bottling your own products, um, you know, doesn't really stand up to the scrutiny for me. Um, but the KNF, I, I'm, I'm, I love KNF. I love natural farming techniques. You know, as I mentioned, we've got four dozen species of plants in total. And so it's very much so rooted in natural uh, farming techniques. However, the advantage that we have is the precision chemistry that we're capable of achieving. I don't think any um, KNF calcium chelate is going to come anywhere near what we can achieve through our precision manufacturing techniques, which are inspired by uh, natural reactions that occur in the soil. These are microbe ferments. These are plant-based organic acids. These are things that are very abundant and occur uh, universally in the natural world. So for us to achieve this CalMag that has 6% calcium, 1% magnesium, um, and still kind of maintain that KNF friendly form factor, I think is not something that just the average KNF grower will do. In fact, unless you're like, unless you're doing, yeah, no, no KNF people buy for all intents and purposes. I don't think any KNF person can achieve what, what we're doing without some serious, serious equipment involved in the processes for sure. Boy, I love it when I look back and I ask for questions and all I see is great, great Q&A. Could he do another show and become a recurring guest? And the other responses are, I've already have to go back and watch this a couple of times to absorb all the amazing information this guest has laid down. <laughs> so... Cool. <laughs> They have absolutely loved this, and you've given them a ton of great information. And I, I hope you uh, decide to come back. I know I didn't get a chance to go over this pre-show, but this is how things work around here. And I hope that you take me up on all three, to be honest with you. There's uh, this show, which is the spotlight where we kind of get to know the people behind the Instagram, the products, the growers, all that good stuff which is phase one, you've completed that. And I hope, by the way, we can do this again because this has been an excellent episode. I've learned a lot and enjoyed myself. But in, the, in this process, you have uh, earned your rights to uh, the second phase of what goes on here is uh, what we call Weed Nerd World. And basically, Weed Nerd World is, Monday nights is a mandatory Weed Nerd World. Weed Nerd World is open to all past guests. So as of tonight, that could be a combination of 509 people. <laughs> it never really gets that big, but it is a reoccurring panel. or re it, 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 re ha. It's a constant changing panel. There we go. So you, this the Zoom link that you have is the same Zoom link that we use for the Weed Nerd mm -hmm. World. So anytime mm -hmm. there's a Weed Nerd World, Monday's mandatory. It's always a Weed Nerd World. Any other time is like, say, tonight when we don't go the full gauntlet from 11.30 to 4.20. How that works is once this episode ends, I will uh, take a quick break and then I will fire up again under the Weed Nerd World banner and past guests will help me finish out the night. So they're hoping as well you will at some point give us some time there, pop in and, you know, more of a one-on-one -on -one from groups, you know, a group conversation about what's going on. 
would be completely amazing. But uh, and and there's one other phase to the channel too that you would be more than an appropriate fit for, and that's uh, a show that uh, Smiley's Gardens does, and that's uh, the Organic Takeover, and that's straight up soil talk, regenerative soil, how it all works, how carbon works, all you know that the deeper dive into the good stuff that you touched on tonight. Uh, so, yeah, again, all across the board, check, 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 check. I hope that we can get you back and involved in all three aspects of the channel. So you have, this has been a lot of fun and a great episode. So hopefully this is, this is something that does interest you and you can pop in on us at some point, by the way, the weed nerd world, um, you don't need an invitation. It's anytime you want to, by the way. Any, I mean, seriously, anytime you want to, you don't need an invitation. You've got the link. You tune in, we're talking about something you want to talk about or just want to hang out, feel free. Yeah, seriously, you don't need an invitation just to want to. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that works out. So, uh, yeah, how how how'd you like, uh, how was the, your time on the show, by the way, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, I, I liked it. Um, you know, it's always fun for me to talk about this stuff, especially getting a chance to look at, you know, specifically the, the products that uh, we've developed um, over the past couple of years, because it's not very often that I've got the opportunity to dive into the chemistry of them individually and kind of talk about them, even though I've spent a very long time formulating them and developing them into what they are right now. Um, and so it's, you know, it is very beneficial, especially if I'm actively focused on doing this work where I'm trying to push the envelope and push the boundary of what any person understands to be true about plant fertility and soil health and all this stuff um, to kind of look back on that in, in uh, you know, hindsight and with 2020 vision, be able to precisely identify and, and use the right terminology, I think uh, is great because it's not, you know, it's one thing to try to always be in this like sales pitch mode to say, you know, buy my product and it's the best one. It's, it's going to work better than anything else, which is not what this is about at all. This is more about looking at the mechanics, looking at the carbon and saying, well, if you want more terpenes and cannabinoids, those are mostly carbon anyway. So you have to get carbon into the mix and just learning how to have this discussion starting with that, I think is super useful because it's, it's something I think people want to get into. They, they realize that there's, there's this like vast and unexplored world in terms of possibilities of what you can do to increase your yield and increase your quality. And this is the type of stuff that connects growers to their gardens, you know, to get lost in the mold and to kind of just get stuck in the same repetitive process over and over again can kind of destroy the fun after a while. So um, I've always been inspired by cannabis plants, obviously, and other plants too. Um, as a, as a way of learning more about not only ourselves, but, you know, this kind of planet that we exist, uh, simultaneously with these plants and, and really what our sort of networks are like when they're integrated. We've got this nervous system that's soft wired for plants like cannabis and cannabinoids that they produce. Not only cannabis, actually mallow plants like hibiscus and marshmallow and chocolate and cacao plants, um, the mallow plants is a great big vast family of plants that accounts for about 4,200 ish species or something like that. All of them are 
edible raw or cooked root all the way up to the shoot and the fruit you can eat whatever you want on these plants basically the whole plant there's very very few exceptions um so to me that's always been this like remarkable example of how humans in our day-to-day -day experience we're soft wired for some of these compounds that are produced by plants and similarly with plants having like this diverse and broad set of terpenes that's possible to express if those plants get fed a salt-based diet that, that that terpene range becomes more narrow it doesn't actually open up and get more broad it becomes more narrow and similarly with us as humans i think that if we if we don't open ourselves up to the potentials and the possibilities we start to kind of lose sight of what's possible because we're kind of chasing this very narrow fraction of what's actually real like we're chasing these numbers as far as terpenes or cannabinoids without even thinking on the back end what about the therapeutic quality of this stuff can we achieve therapeutic results with lower concentrations of terpenes and cannabinoids than would be suggested on paper and i think the answer is yes even for guys that have been smoking for a long time and who've been consuming for a very long time such as myself you know it's it's less about the numbers on paper and it's more about the story that was told when that plant was grown from start to finish i'll take that story 10 times out of 10 i won't take that lab report that's just a piece of paper it's going to get pulled away by the breeze and it's gone you know the story is what sticks that's the that's the real essence of the plant's life so i definitely always appreciate being able to come on shows like this and have good conversations so I'll make it a point to come back on and we can, you know, chop it up again and we'll do phase two and we'll do phase three as well. It's going to be great. I hope so. I really hope so. And I tell you, you know, not coming, well, not that you didn't explain the products, but uh, you, you took the time to go through, just like you said, you took the time to go through and explain things and it wasn't more like an infomercial type in an interview here it made me want to ultimately try the product more than <laughs> like the infomercial style would have been you know what i mean right now I, i'm looking at you I, I think to myself this guy really understands the plant the workings and what needs to happen in my garden that makes me want to try your product more than coming on and telling me it'll do this you know all the claim type things but with that being said you never once have yet told us where we can find the product <laughs> and its availability <laughs> help us out here sir where that's can right we find this awesome product that's right so we don't have uh distributors right now we're distributing uh ourselves so you guys can go on our website rootedleaf.com we did create a coupon code um, for this stream, we just had to because it was so fitting. We decided to make the coupon code Eagle Twenty, just like just like the pesticides. So, um, if people use Eagle Twenty in the coupon code, they'll get twenty percent off their purchase. Um, and you know, our website we we spent a long time on the website. We developed it just like we do the products. We made it from scratch. So all of the content there we came up with. You'll see a lot of good information about each product. You know, please. For those of you who are interested in our products, you know, spend a little bit of time, give us a couple minutes of your day and, and read some of the text that you'll see, read about the plants that we use in the formulations, why these products are different um, and, and what some of the carbon concentrations are. And then don't forget that Eagle 20 discount code where you can get 20% off your order. Um, so yeah, I mean, we sell directly on our website. We ship, um, you know, 
pretty fast. We've our operations manager is a wizard. He's really good at uh, getting orders out super quick. So typically, turnaround time is super fast for people. Even if they're placing orders on the website and they're on the East Coast, they they get the orders pretty fast. You've got quite the chuckle out of chat with that Eagle Twenty code there. I can see, I can see how it plays together, and it's pretty unforgettable. It is it's like it what, is. What was that? That code? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The Eagle Twenty. Yeah, That's right. Because yeah. everyone knows Eagle Twenty, so it's like, well, if you want a discount code, it's Eagle Twenty. There we go. Well, I appreciate that. I'm sure they do as well. I just wish we could. It seems like every time that I. I, the guest is lucky. We're lucky enough to get a code. It's always that Eagle 20. It's always the Eagle 20. <laughs> That's funny. So other people have done that before for you, huh? The same discount? Well, yes. But I, they, well, it was never the 20%. They just throw it out there as the, the Eagle 20. And I'm like, ah, mm-hmm. come on. But in this case, Eagle and 20% off, it was more than appropriate. So, yeah, no yeah, and, here. Yeah, <laughs> and I think, you know, 20% is, um, I, you know, I hope That's it motivates deal. people to try some of our, our stuff, particularly the CalMag. If you look at the, the CalMag, that one is definitely one of our best sellers at 6% calcium. It's going to be the most concentrated CalMag out there, but just the chemistry of it, not having any of the nitrates. Like, if you're looking for a calcium supplement for like mid, bloom i mean that is yeah that's definitely the the one for you and people that use it in veg because it has such a high carbon concentration um we do see resinous trichome production occurring on the veg side as well this is something that is a little bit unusual too we get actual glandular trichomes being produced by veg plants and it's uh partially a function of the calmag maybe a little helpful in that uh hunt for the male see trichome uh, he can get early on oh yeah yeah <clears throat> yeah and there's something to be said about you know learning how to hunt for males too and learning how to bring the best characteristics out of male plants which you know maybe we can get into um at a future you know for one of our future topics we can kind of look more in depth um because the, the way that the product line itself was made is something that maybe people would want to get into there's a reason that we chose to make a CalMag with no nitrogen, but then we have a standalone nitrogen product with no nitrates inside of it. There's all this like really cool biochemistry that's happening and, you know, kind of in in line with helping people understand how to better improve their results. um, Maybe it would be cool for us to kind of talk about just like, you know, plant macronutrients um, and just, you know, chop it up, kind of talk to people about how, you know, what's really important as far as NPK ratios or, you know, how important is calcium really? Um, it may be shocking for some people to hear that you, your plants take up easily, easily take up more calcium than phosphorus. But phosphorus is that middle number, it's right, NPK. So most people think NPKs, NPKs, you need PK boosters and all this stuff. Your plants will take up more calcium than phosphorus across the whole lifespan for sure, without a doubt. So um, I think framing the understandings correctly for people ought to give them a better uh, understanding of of how to pursue the cultivation of this plant without doing anything that would limit their um, ability to grow high quality medicine or you know very rich in terpenes and highly concentrated cannabinoids. Um, so yeah, yeah. 
Chad still. Chad's already Chad's already on your website, by the way. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I like the enthusiasm. Yeah. This is a good community here. And it's pretty much built the way that you see it now. A lot of people that are hanging out in chat are past guests. And we do kind of look to, you know, great people and building a bigger and better community based on great people and knowledge. So I wouldn't be mm -hmm. surprised if you've seen a good influx of uh, Instagram follows in the next day or so of people watching this episode because it, like I was trying to say, it's so much easier to get behind a product or a grower when you know a little bit about them and what they're about, you kind of feel like, you know, a friend that runs the company, you know what I mean? They, they, mm -hmm. they've made a friend tonight, you know what I'm saying? And it's easier yeah. to deal with and relate. So that's, that's what we like to do. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I love interacting with people too. If you guys want to send us messages on Instagram, um, you know, I'm typically the person that reads those messages and responds. So if you guys have questions about any of the stuff that we chatted about, you know, feel free to ask away. Um, we like to build this community out too. We like to see people learning information, retaining that information and really um, applying that information in their own gardens where they can see some of the benefits as far as the health of their plants goes. I, I love seeing people just achieve better results because it reinvigorates that connection. It can get so monotonous growing this plant over and over again if you just kind of become a slave to it and you know, just grow it because it's like, oh, you need it or you depend on it. You know, that, that magical connection kind of can, can vanish. And oftentimes, if you can help reinvigorate that for someone, you can really um, set them down a good path for several years as they kind of become excited about this thing again. And that's certainly what we want to see. We want to see people become passionate about growing this plant, about growing other plants, and really just about understanding plants better overall. It's a great, uh, great way to be, that's for sure. And a lot of that stuff, that, like you said before, directly relates back to uh, growing cannabis. It might be a different plant, but there's still things that we can take from the science of other plants and bring it back home to our garden. Yeah, and if you look at how other plants do certain things, you may um, learn with, you know, you may get some better insight into um other plants like silica and horsetail is a good one. You know, horsetail plants take up a lot of silica. They can be like 10% silicon by dry weight. So they, they are accumulators to say the least of this element. But it also is interesting to note that there's not a lot of fungal um, disease pressures for horsetail plants that they live out there in the natural world and they're fairly un, undisturbed by fungi. And, you know, you better believe that there's a relationship between the fact that this plant takes up so much silica and the fact that it can so efficiently resist powdery mildew and fungal disease pressures. Um, and th there's a sort of a structure and function for that. So horsetail is a good plant for us to, a model plant for us to learn from and to say, well, how do plants that take up a lot of silicon process that silicon in such a way that creates this barrier, this defensive barrier against um, disease pressures. Is it a mechanical thing as an, is an actual physical barrier or is it like a biochemical thing in the sense that the plant's DNA becomes activated and it's got this immune response that then kills the powdery mildew. So, you know, learning how to 
understand plants doing their own thing gives us greater insight into how other plants, which may not take up a lot of silicon, but um, nevertheless, even if they take up a little bit of silicon, like cannabis takes up a you know little bit of silicon, it's not a huge accumulator of silicon, but it takes up enough. And certainly what we've learned about horsetail um, has uh given us the ability to look at how silicon works in cannabis plants so it's very much so along the same lines we need this broad and diverse um, input across a variety of plants to better appreciate how cannabis grows kind of wonder you mentioned hiccabus plants earlier i was talking to a gardener at one point and she was uh, telling me that the way they sway the color in them plants is by the spike the pH up or down either way to bring out different colors in that plant. I've almost thought about trying it on the cannabis plant to see if I can bring out different colors uh, in my cannabis in the flush. Maybe a pH or you know watering with a slightly higher pH to see if I can bring out some colors that I wouldn't normally see. Yeah, and those typically those like um, in with hydrangeas and the pH changes, those are just a way of getting that anthocyanin pigment to express a different color because it does change color at certain pH ranges. The lower the pH, the more um, red or crimson it gets. In some cases, I think delphinidin is an anthocyanin that turns red. And then at a higher pH, it'll turn a little bit more like neutral pH, it'll turn blue. And then at a higher pH, it'll turn greenish, goldish. And eventually, at, as the pH continues to get higher and higher, um, it starts to break down irreversibly. So the interesting thing about anthocyanins, particular classes of anthocyanins, um, is that some of them are highly stable at low pHs. And in fact, they act as antioxidants at those really low pHs. Uh, but at a higher pH, they can be completely broken down. So I, yeah, I think those types of tricks may work for plants that are a little bit different like cannabis may not respond that well to it i think instead of a pigment change you would you would probably as a result of feeding a, a super high ph you'd probably see uh more excessive like mineral lockout you'd see some iron lockout or something like that occurring well judging from what you were saying there it sounds like from the colors i'd be wanting i'd want to go down anyway so yeah, yeah, you would probably want to go down and get some of those purples and some of those other pigments out. Um, but, you know, that color changes those anthocyanins. They are produced in response to a variety of stressors. One of one such stressor could be ultraviolet light because that purple pigment is like a sunscreen that absorbs the UV light coming in that would otherwise do damage to the plants. One of the other things it can be is like an anti-feedant or an anti-nutrient. If you've got some leaf biting insects, crawling around on a Japanese red maple, um, you know, if the insect's trying to, well, so on the, on the Japanese red maple example, that's like a camouflage example because most insects have little, um, they have like uh, photoreceptors in their eyes that are fine tuned for green light because they, you know, these insects go around, they eat green leafy plants. And so for them to have these receptors in the eyes to find the next food source is pretty important. So you can imagine an evolutionary advantage that a plant has in producing a pigment that it basically makes it invisible to a predator. Uh, in Japanese red maples, they do have natural predators, but they don't have as many as you know other species of maple. And I think part of it is because the 
the anthocyanins let them better camouflage and kind of hide away from prey that's looking distinctly for green leafy surfaces, you know. Um, but the anti-feedant, anti-nutrient uh, function is also there. Antho anthocyanins can um, make it more difficult for insects to absorb uh, sugars and to absorb nutrients from the sap that's in the phloem. So it's almost like a, a way of poisoning the well, so to speak, for the plants. They're going to say, okay, well, I'm not going to prevent you from getting in and, you know, sucking the sap out of the phloem tissue, but I am going to make sure that that sap isn't going to be nutritional. It's going to be anti-nutritional for you. So that's one of the other mechanisms. Um, phosphorus deficiency, maybe another common one people have sort of linked uh, the, the coloration to phosphorus deficiencies. And yeah, I think the last one would just be temperature drop. People drop the temperatures and that forces the pigments to come out. Um, there's a mechanical thing that happens there with those pigments, like they basically function like antifreeze <clears throat> for the plant. So as you drop the temperature, um, the solubility of things decreases, <clears throat> particularly sugars that are being transported and solubilized. So. Uh, in the right context, that decrease in temperature forces the metabolism of those molecules to create antifreeze type of substances that the plants can use to better line the tissue and to transport stuff back and forth without it, you know, freezing and transport. One last question, I guess, is that. Uh, Ned Dipper in chat was saying or asking, what is the longest the nutrients can sit in a reservoir? He mentioned earlier wanting to use it right away, but is there a window? Uh, I would say, yeah, definitely use it as soon as you can. Realistically, um, if you let it sit for more than a couple of hours in a warm room, you're going to notice pH change, you're going to notice some biological activity happening. If you let it sit overnight in a warm room, like 12 hours, oh man, yeah, the pH is, is definitely going to change on you. And then you're going to see a lot of biofilm, the microbial activity happening in the product. So it's best with ours, just mix and apply right away. And then obviously make sure that your lines are cleaned out and nothing gets um, built up there. But, you know, the reason for that is all of our products are extremely biologically active. Like the salt-based stuff is not very biologically relevant. You know, there's a difference between being soluble and being biologically relevant for a plant's metabolic pathway. If you have things that are soluble, like calcium nitrate, you can have stock solutions sitting for a couple of days. And these stock solutions don't change in pH, and they don't really change in EC. They may change a little bit, but they're not going to change too much. If you have compost teas, for example, and you're letting those sit for a couple of days, you're likely to see greater swings in pH and certainly a greater swing in EC overall, because those things are less stable, specifically because they're more biologically relevant. They're more bioavailable for microbes and for fungi. Um, so the same thing is true with plants. If, you're, if we're making products, chelates, that are 100% uh, available for plants to take up and then to incorporate in their metabolic pathways, really it's like a ticking time bomb because the microbes also want it, the fungi also want it, and whatever gets it is, is gonna benefit from it first and the most from it. So that's why I always recommend getting our products mixed up and then applied to the plants immediately. It's probably the best way to do it. There you go, Ned. Well, again, uh, thank you for your time. It is getting <laughs> late and uh, you obviously have 
a nice sized business to run. So I don't want to keep you till the wee hours of the morning. So I guess I'll, this is where I'll thank you for your time. Before you go, I would like to get one last thing for you. Hopefully mm-hmm. you'll play along with me. Basically what I'm looking for is what I call the sound bite. It's basically, or will be a commercial for this episode. It's just like the old school radio identifies radio identification where the artist would come on. Hey, this is Bon Jovi and I'm on 105.5. But in this case, it goes something a little bit more like, hey, this is Eagle, and I'm on fucking talking shit with Eagle, episode 506. If you don't want to throw the fucking in, I can completely understand. But as long as it contains that much, you can throw whatever at the beginning or at the end, make it your own. But uh, that's what I'm looking for. And I will be hitting record now. So anytime you're ready. This is Nick with Rooted Leaf. I'm here on fucking talking shit with Eagle, and we're here talking about advanced cannabis cultivation. So for those of you who are interested in learning more about how to grow higher quality cannabis that's better, come on in and listen, and we'll give you a a little bit of a hint so far. The answer to all of your questions is going to revolve around carbon. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you very much uh, for the sound bite, for all the information, the chance to save a little bit of money on trying your nutrients. And I'm going to express the want one more time for you to come back because this has been an amazing episode. Thank you again. I appreciate it. Yeah, we'll definitely be in touch. I'll make it a point to come back on. And uh, thank you guys on on the live chat. Thanks for your participation. And I'm looking forward to having you guys reach out on Instagram and um, ask any questions that you want, you know, we're here to help and we're always around. So I hope you guys have a great night and uh, I'm looking forward to doing this again. Thank you so much. Well, guys, that does end this episode 509. Uh, They have been throwing the link to your Instagram all throughout the show. So there's no excuse not to be able to find you. Hopefully they have taken that opportunity and hit that link and subscribed. But for the rest of you guys, hopefully you take some time and to follow over into the Weed Nerd. If not, I greatly appreciate your time. Grateful for the view. You guys know the deal. Random acts of kindness do save lives. Do not be afraid to go out there and help somebody out today. With that being said, thank you very much one last time, Nick, uh, for your time. I greatly appreciate it. But uh, for the rest of you, see you in a few minutes. Hopefully, we are out of here. Thanks again, Nick. I'll talk to you again soon.